Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, and we ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes most Mondays through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or you can head right to nationalreview.com and also find episodes there. Listen, enjoy, share, and please leave reviews of our shows. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Standing by my tag team partner, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff. Hey, what's up? I'm just searching high, searching low, searching everywhere I know and asking the cops wherever I go. Have you seen Dignity? (laughs) Oh, boy. And I I guess he's almost an official third member of the team by this point. Uh, Our guest for this continued Bob Dylan episode is a senior editor at the Daily Beast, overseeing breaking news, political media, and occasionally music coverage by night. An alt-country singer-songwriter desperately looking for a career switch. You can find him on Twitter at Andrew Carell. He is Andrew Carell. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, if you have uh, not been with us up, in, up until this point, you've got about five hours of work ahead of you before you reach this point in Bob Dylan's career. We have a part one. Uh, which we went th- all the way through John Wesley Harding. We have a part two in which we took it all the way up through the gospel era. And now, what you have in your uh, ears, I suppose, is part three in which we go from the gospel era all the way through, well, present day. Which means, gentlemen, we have a whole lot of time to cover and a whole lot of albums to cover, and we might as well not dawdle. Yeah, 40 years, that's easy to do. Come on. <laughs> So let's let's pick it back up from from where we left off last time. We had street legal and and at Budokan uh, to close out the last episode. Uh, an, an album that is uh, um, beloved in some sectors. I I love it. Uh, I think Andrew loves it. And uh, and Jeff was was a little more in the middle. I think on street legal than, than the two of us. And then at Budokan, which is widely considered to be a fairly bad live album, and that opens us up to the gospel era where Bob Dylan becomes a born-again Christian. The story yep, on that guy. That's a headline right there. Yeah. Um, uh, for those people who aren't maybe big Bob Dylan fans or aren't tuned into the sort of cultural history of music from that era, the idea of Bob Dylan, you know, quintessential Jewish rock star, becoming <laughs> a fire and brimstone evangelical Christian is a real stunner. But it actually happened. It was for real and as I said, when we capped the end of our show, I think it's probably the most misunderstood era of his career. I think you could say that uh, whether you like Street Legal or not, or, or at Budokan for that matter, uh, what they showed, I think, very clearly in the lyrics, in the sound, and also in the events in Dylan's personal life, what with his divorce from his wife, uh, was a restless soul, somebody who was clearly searching for something. He was looking for something. He hadn't found it yet. He knew that, that somewhere, somehow, there was a changing of the guards taking place, uh, but nobody really had any inkling of what was to come. What was to come was you know, a moment where, as Dylan said, uh, he related it to somebody uh, in an interview. He said, like, I think I, he was sitting in a hotel room. You know, he's reading the Bible. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden he had an image of Jesus just there in front of him saying, you know, why, why are you fighting me? Why are you rejecting me? Come to me. Join me. And he did. Now, is that really what happened? Who knows? What matters for our purposes is that his next album, Out of Nowhere, is a record that is composed entirely of gospel, spiritual, explicitly Christian-themed 
music. And the name of that album is Slow Train Coming. This is the most misunderstood and I think oftentimes critically reviled era of Bob Dylan's career. It has seen something of a critical renaissance in recent years, particularly with the release of the most recent bootleg series set. But it was widely disliked for decades after its era. And I think even Dylan himself, while never really kind of forsaking the music or forsaking even the message of the music, felt a little uncomfortable talking about this period. But I, I think this is, is one of the, the great efflorescences of his career. I think this music is fantastic. I think it is him and his most committed, his most interesting, his most absolutely fearless, uh, even for its flaws. And there are real flaws that you can say about the three albums that embody this period. Slow Train Coming, Saved, and Shot of Love from the years 1979 to 1981. Uh, but we should start with Slow Train Coming, which is the one I think critics are most likely to agree on as being a good album. I don't think it's a good album. I think it is a legitimately great album. I think you can argue this is – it's so hard to say a top five for Dylan because like you could put you know, five records from the 1960s alone in his top five and still not have room for blood on the tracks. But I think this is top peak period Bob Dylan and I think far too many people resist that because they think the idea of Bob Dylan singing songs about Jesus Christ is just a little bit too weird to get behind I'm going to I'm going to let somebody else sort of take the lead to talk about this first before I get into the details of these songs but for the listeners I will say this Please, if you can conceivably set aside your reservations and your feelings about how strange the idea of Dylan as an evangelical Christian singing gospel music must sound, this is fantastic music. This is a great album. Somebody want to take it from there? I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> Go, Andrew. So um, I think the person you're describing who uh, hasn't heard evangelical Christian, I mean, hasn't heard evangelical Dylan this is the album to start with because um, Slow Train Coming, I think, is everybody's introduction to his gospel period, but also it's like the most Dylan-esque of the three albums in a lot of ways. Right. It's not overtly like praise music and mm -hmm. worship music in the, the other two albums. This one is still like retains that sort of Dylan lyrical flourishes and like storytelling that you would if you you know didn't know he even went evangelical you wouldn't even you wouldn't even have thought this was this is worship music it was just dylan fire and brimstone lyricism uh and it's also just a fantastic record i agree but for me i think actually it's just the first half of the record is really what does it i mean it's like it's almost got that boogie r&b opening on gotta serve somebody but uh i can go through all the tracks but i'm sure we're going to talk about a bunch of them but my favorite on this album and the one that i think fits to that category of like the lyrics being typical Dylan um, is precious angel. Mm -hmm. Yes. Second track on the album and has all kinds of really, really um, it's like the, if you imagined uh, if you had to picture without knowing these songs, Dylan writing a evangelical allegory rock song, I think this, you know, you look at the lyrics and it's just like, yeah, it makes sense because it's just got that, that like acid tongued fire and brimstone uh, pounding on the table Dylan that we already knew before this album. I wasn't alive, but I would have known if I were alive. Uh, but like my favorite part of the song is he kind of like scowls. His sister, let me tell you about a vision that I saw. You were drawing water for your husband. 
you were suffering under the law, you were telling him about Buddha, you were telling him about Muhammad in the same breath. You never mentioned one time the man who came and died a criminal's mm-hmm. death. And it's just like, it's I, I read it straight face, so it doesn't convey the sort of... <laughs> Uh, just the vocal performance, particularly on that verse, is just like, yeah, that like you believe it. You believe what Dylan believes. You believe you just you can sense that sort of that same energy that went into Blonde on Blonde and into Highway 61. That sort of just like almost like methamphetamine because he was on pills at the time. It's sort of like that just snarling into the microphone. It's so, so good. Sister, let me tell you. Precious Angel is one of those songs that I think is is peak Dylan. I'll say it right now. It's going to be one of my top five songs at the end of the show. And I marvel at the fact that it's not more famous. I don't think it's ever been on a compilation. It's never been on any of – it's never kind of remarked upon as one of Dylan's great songs. It's just – it's not only a, 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 a lyrical triumph. That is some of the most beautiful music mm-hmm. of his career. It is this rolling – what would you say, Andrew? Mark Knopfler playing the guitar. Oh, yeah. And of course, you know, I wanted to get into this. You know, the music on Slow Train Coming, this isn't just a lyrically interesting album. This is musically. He went to Muscle Shoals, you know, the classic soul mecca in alabama and he um he he not only got like you know the got the soul singers and the r&b kind of stylistics which could have been a disaster in the hands of of almost any other let's be frank here any other white artist trying to you know put like you know the the beautiful girl backing vocal singers onto his music could have sounded horribly fake but he uses them so well on this song in particular and a lot of other ones gotta serve somebody but then of course he also brought in mark knopfler of dire straits who we did an episode on a little earlier who just covers this album in his guitar work and you know whatever else you might think of dire straits whether you're a fan or not i don't think there's a person in the world who can object (laughs) to the sound of mark knopfler's guitar tone it's just just it's beautifully both tasteful and emotionally resonant. And I think the story is that Knopfler was approached by Dylan and Dylan's manager and said, hey, you know, Bob really wants you to play on his new stuff, his new album. And Mark Knopfler was like, okay, great. And he goes into the sessions and he had no idea that it was going to be like fundamentalist Christian music. And he called and says, his manager, he's like, dude, I'm playing on this gospel stuff. This is not what I was expecting at all. But he does a fantastic job with it. And he's just all over this record, and this record benefits so much from it. There's a 
there's no there's nothing precluding you from enjoying this album other than someone has labeled it of the gospel era and certainly when you hear the lyrics when you pay attention you'll you'll know but musically um and and in terms of its accessibility it's all there it's all there for for you to enjoy there's nothing preventing you from from doing it and and look you know when you get you go blood of the tracks and then desire which i don't love but i you know andrew does clearly and others do street legal and slow train coming this is a tremendous uh little stretch of albums after a little fallow period in the in the early 70s for uh for for, for dylan this is a really great album mark knopfler and pick withers who played drums in in dire straits also drums on on the album uh, and it's not as if you know there hasn't been some you know john wesley harding it was was a spiritual type album street legal had a lot of biblical imagery as we talked about in the last episode so it's not exactly out of nowhere but it's never been as all-encompassing certainly as some of the lyrics on slow train coming i too come to praise uh precious angel that is a tremendous tremendous song and you have you know those very stark lyrics you either got faith or you got unbelief there ain't no neutral ground going back to a very black and white uh you know no shades of gray kind of stance that you might have heard from some of the protest years uh bob dylan uh songs I uh, I love Slow Train. Uh, Mark Knopfler's solo is is outstanding. That final verse, the uh, "My Baby Went to Illinois" verse, right. is is so fantastic. When 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 has there really ever been a time in the past where you could say of a Bob Dylan song, you you really, really got to hear that for the guitar solo? Yeah, right. Never, never. That's it. This is it. <laughs> this is probably it. the first and last time I would say because it, when you bring in Mark Knopfler, that's what you get. Yeah. Well, uh, on "Shot of Love," you got Knopfler and and McTaylor playing, so maybe uh, maybe right. a little bit later on. But uh, Slow the Train just nearly as good unfortunately Correct. in my opinion yes uh, but but slow train just this wonderful unfolding uh, song well, my baby went to Illinois with some bad talking boss she could destroy a real suicide case but there was nothing I could do to stop it I don't care about economy I don't care about astronomy You know, Andrew's point, the first half is probably better than the second half, but on the back half, um, <laughs> I like Do Right To Me Baby, and the way that the lyrics are, are set up, you know, uh, don't want to shoot nobody, don't want to don't want to be shot, don't want to bury nobody, don't want to be buried, and, and the sort of twists that are in there occasionally, like, don't want to marry nobody, and, and then, it, you know, don't want to marry if they're already married. It's, you know, there, there are a couple of neat little twists in there from, from, from the established pattern that Dylan sets, and it's a great groove. It's it's not upper echelon, but I really enjoy the song. And, um, you know, when you're going to wake up, as horns on it, very up-tempo rock tune. I don't want to steal uh, Jeff's thunder. I know he's going to talk about this being a fantastic live era, but I will say when you're going to wake up uh, live on uh, the bootleg eight uh, is, is, is even better live. And there are a number of songs on these three gospel era uh, albums that, that sound even better uh, live, I think. But slow, slow train treatment coming. I mean, don't be scared. Don't be scared off. Oh, it's gospel era. It, it's it's Dylan, you know, preaching. It's there. As, as I said, there's nothing, nothing precluding you from enjoying this music. 
I, I, I criticized street legal in a way, I guess that neither of you guys really did. Uh, because I said that like, while the music I thought was interesting enough, the band obviously really cooked, but I thought the lyrics were flabby and I thought some of the music didn't have a lot of conviction to it. What I, I really love, and I've come to appreciate more and more about Slow Train as I listen to it over and over as I get older, is the variety in this album. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dylan really kind of, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was just pure inspiration. Maybe it was a calculation, like I'm making this, this really big play. It's a big risk. I'm going to pull out all the stops. There is so much musical variety on this record. You don't really get bored with it. It's not like Another Side of Bob Dylan or even Highway 61 Revisited. Great album, but it's all kind of in the same mode. You got you starts with Gotta Serve Somebody, which is actually, we didn't really even mention it. It's the most famous song on the record. <laughs> what a Grammy. It's the, it, it, it's the big single. Um, you know, you got to serve somebody. You know, you may he may be the devil, he may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve someone. You know this song. It still gets played on the radio. You may be a preacher, preacher, spiritual pride. Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side. Maybe working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair. It may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody. got that which is kind of a slow burn kind of a funk song slow train has that same vibe when you're going to wake up as a rock song when he returns is a piano ballad i think Mm -hmm. one of his best pure piano ballads although it was even better live but like he even throws in stuff like um i believe in you a great little kind of mid-tempo ballad and then and i know this is my hot take for the gospel years I really like man gave names to all the animals. Uh, yeah. And okay. you know who else did? Who? Uh, Towns Van Zant used to cover it all the time. Yes. Okay. People hate this song. For those who aren't aware, this is, this is a song where, you know, he, it's literally, he's talking about like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Man gave all names to all the animals in the beginning a long time ago. And he, like, he goes through it like he saw an animal that liked to growl with big furry paws that liked to howl. Great back and furry hair. I think I'll call it a bear. All right. You know, it's and there's like six of these verses that it's just like, I'll call it a cow. I'll call it a pig. I'll call it a bull. And it's silly. And it, you, you almost think it's 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 a joke. And it is kind of a joke. But what it occurs to me every time I listen to it is like this is Bob Dylan on a very unironic level making both a Christian theme song and also making kids music. And not in a bad way. This is a song that you can imagine him having sung to his child. And in fact, it's a song that I know friends of mine. And so like, yeah, I play that for my kid. He loves it. <laughs> All right. He loves it. Saw an animal that liked to snort with horns on his head. And they weren't too short. There was nothing he couldn't pull. He said, I'm going to call it a bull. It is a perfect kid song. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then it has that little sting at the end where, you know, he says like, Saw an animal smooth as glass slithering through the grass. Saw him disappear by a tree near a lake. And you already know the way the meter of the rest of the verses go. And you think, well, I'm going to call it a snake. But it, it doesn't do anything. It just ends. Boom. It lets you fill in those lines. Just a clever little touch. I love that song. And 
it's one of these ones that kind of gets a bad reputation. People's like, oh, look at, you know, Dylan, the man who wrote Desolation Row is now writing this babyish drivel. It's like, you, you don't get it. You don't get what he was going for. And also, I don't think you allow him the freedom to write songs in all sorts of different modes. He's on It looked like there was nothing that he couldn't pull Oh, I think I'll call it a bull Man gave names to all the animals In the beginning And that's what I think makes Slow Train Coming so great as a record. On a musical level and on a, on a lyrical level, I get it. Like, you know, if you're a, I don't know, you're, if you're a devout Muslim, I can understand maybe you're not really all into the whole praise Jesus stuff. I get it. If you're like, you know, a Hasidic Jew, perhaps you might not dig this on a <laughs> lyrical level. I can understand people with like, you know, severe religious objections to it. But the lyrics are solid, but the music has such strong variety. And it also has... And this, I think, is the moment where I really want to talk about the live performance from this era. It has extremely committed vocals, and I would say it has the best vocals of any Bob Dylan record um, from his post-Blood on the Tracks era. I think that his commitment level to singing these songs resulted in, from, from the belief that he clearly had, uh, resulted in his best vocal performances of you know, these last 40 years. And you hear this most clearly on the live performances of the songs on the Bootleg Series, Volume 13. This is called Trouble No More. It just came out. Uh, there are many editions you can get. The, the, the largest of them is like, I don't know, 400 CDs long. Um, but what you hear is these songs from these three albums played live. And the band is the same band that he uses to record this material. But it is actually shocking. It's almost hair-raising the level of vocal power that he brings to this music. And you'll hear people sometimes say this, like, you know, oh yeah, the albums, maybe they weren't, they weren't great, but man, you should have been there to hear the live shows. People have been saying that for decades. Now you finally have the proof. You can hear what they were talking about and they were right. I can This is his best live era, which sounds like blasphemy. 
given that he had you know the famous 1966 tour with the band Rolling Thunder Review. Uh, but I will take all of those, and I say those are all great in their own way. But when I actually say what is peak live Dylan in terms of the one that I wish I could have been there to see because I would have had the feel the hair raise on my back and have kind of a, a transcendent experience of watching somebody completely come recklessly committed to their art perform in front of me, it would have been Bob Dylan, April 1980, playing in Toronto, you know, um, you know, and previewing the saved and slow train coming material because the music is out there. You can hear it now. It's amazing. It is just the most powerful stuff ever. Um, and the shame of it is that that doesn't entirely show through on the next album he did from that sort of gospel trilogy, which is Saved. I don't think there's a more hated album in Bob Dylan's <laughs> career than Saved. People make fun of like Down in the Groove or Empire Burlesque or Knocked Out Loaded, which we will get to soon. Um, but people actively hate Saved. And I think they hate it because it's just so on the nose straight up as andrew said this is straight up worship praise music mm -hmm. there's no avoiding it there's no getting around it you know he writes songs about you know you know beautiful women who are devoted to jesus and calls it covenant woman it's a little bit strange i think it's a much better album than its reputation and i'm hoping that one of you two will help me out here and agree with me so i'm not entirely out on a limb i agree that uh, it's better yeah, than its reputation <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think it's probably better than some of those late uh, '80s works. It's 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 less effective. It's it's less catchy than Slow Train Coming. There's some like um, Jesus Christ Superstar feel to some songs, especially the, 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 ti the title track <laughs> "Saved" is is very Jesus Christ Superstar kind of. But I, I think yeah. there are at least a number, at least uh, what do I got, at least three solid tracks here. Solid rock, actually, which again live is very good. It's a very up-tempo, um, as the title indicates, rock song. Um, pressing on, I don't mind. And th this is one that might rub people the wrong way. Oh, well, I like that one a lot. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's a response to his critics who say he was kind of faking this, you know, this born-again stuff. And, um, uh, and kind of his response to that, you know, many try to stop me, shake me up in my mind. Uh, press it on to the higher calling of the Lord. Uh, and, and, and lyrically and musically, I think... Uh, uh, both hit well on pressing on. Backing vocals are sharp, and, and everything kind of builds through that song. Um, I like Saving Grace, too. Um, and, and lyrically, that is one of the least um, finger-pointing songs on the album. Um, it's a little more thoughtful, a little introspective. It's kind of a slow burn. 
kind of a song with Dylan seeking forgiveness for sins and and looking forward to, to redemption in the future. Look, there's no Mark Knopfler on this album, so he's missed quite a bit on, on guitar. He would come back for uh, for Shot of Love. And it's just, it's the lyrics are more strident. It's more, lyrics are more personal, right? Um, and I think, you know, the difference in the album titles, a slow train coming is kind of a warning and a saved is kind of a personal narrative story uh, of Dylan's experience of becoming born again. And I think that's where some of the, the, the disconnect is. I, I, I don't think it's as bad as its reputation. It's not a very good album, but uh, it's not as bad as some of the things we'd see later on in the decade. I think people never forgave him for the cover, which he actually right. ended it up changed changing. It, right. The original cover of Saved is like like the hand of God reaching down <laughs> to touch up all these these outstretched hands that are reaching up to him. And yeah, there's this exactly zero percent subtlety to that, right? So he changed it to like a live performance shot in later. That's the way the CD looks now these days. But yeah, the original cover is uh, it's a it's a little bit cringe. I think they've um, went back to the original cover on some of the uh, some of the most oh, recent issues. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, in, in our modern sort of reissue era, you want to have fidelity to these things. Yep. Uh, I, my, my, the other thing I want to say about Saved is the problem is the pacing. Is that you go to the second half of that album and every single song sounds like an album-ending anthem. And then you look at the track list and you realize you got four more of them left to go. And they're all those kind of slow plotting anthems that work, I think, in a live context when they're spaced out. But, you know, back to back to back to back, it just gets a bit too tiresome. Andrew, what were you going to say? Sorry. Yeah, for me, it's just the second half of the album that matters. And then even then, it's just pressing on. Like, that's all you need to know about this record, in my opinion. But, <laughs> press, but oh, what a thing it is. Because, like, I think you hinted at those live performances tended to end with pressing on. Mm-hmm. And you would, if you watch the video that comes with Trouble No More in the box set, there's a full live set of, uh, there's a full video of a live set, but like with these little interludes performed by Michael Shannon. Um, interspersed between each video but yeah you can see how absolutely hair raising the live performances and then it all culminates where he puts down the guitar runs over to the piano plays pressing on at the piano with the full band and then as soon as it picks up uh, backup singer starts playing piano I think it's actually his future wife Carolyn Dennis he runs back to the front of the stage grabs the mic and it's like front band Dylan without a guitar that you would never (laughs) you never thought see and then he just if i remember correctly he drops the mic and they're still playing until through the end of the performance like pressing on is just like one of his best climactic moments both on the record but also in that live period it was just like the art of the climax in a live setting yeah Uh, it's a shame we can't excerpt video here because it just seeing that is it is it's such a, a stunning visual experience to see him just yeah you're right running around in the commitment it's uh you know it's it is i've never seen i've seen a lot of live dylan performing you know you see him like you know you're doing like a rolling stone in 66 and this is this to me is far more electrifying in a strange way precisely because he's doing things that you're not expecting him to do he's really getting out of his comfort zone and he's doing it on a commitment level i want to say one other good thing about a song here called what can i do for you Mm -hmm. Uh, you know i i was raised episcopalian so i'm used to like you know very kind of formal and staid hymn music you know my wife though is evangelical and so i go to the these these kinds of churches i'm familiar with the kinds of songs they play there None of the lyrics that I listen to on a weekly basis have anything on what I think is something 
truly powerful that you hear in What Can I Do For You? This is a song he's writing to God. He's writing to Jesus. Mm -hmm. You've given everything to me. What can I do for you? You've given me the eyes to see what can I do for you? You know, this isn't a finger-pointing song. It's a song of genuine humility. It's like you did everything. You gave up your life. You've explained the mysteries of life. Uh, I, you know, I know all about poison and fiery darts. I, I don't care how rough the road is. Show me where it starts. I don't deserve what you've given me, but I've made it through. And now what can I possibly do for you? That, that conceit, that, that humble conceit is a really powerful one. And I think it comes through on those lyrics. I know all about poison. I don't care how rough the road is Show me where it starts Whatever pleases you Tell it to my heart Well, I, I don't deserve it But I sure did make it through What can I And of course, that stuff never gets recognized because this is all treated as kind of like an embarrassing footnote to Dylan's career. Boy, wasn't it great when he got back to you know more semi-secular music on that 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 next album, "Shot of Love," um, which I'm not entirely sure it was. I think "Shot of Love," which is the the final album of the so-called gospel trilogies, 1981, uh, was notable in that it's still very much in this Christian rock mode. But it includes some songs that aren't explicitly Christian-like, although if you kind of look underneath the surface of a song like Lenny Bruce, ostensibly about the, uh, the, the, the stand-up comic of the 60s who died you know, after being arrested and ostracized, persecuted by the establishment, um, there are kind of Christ-like allegories that he's going for with something like Lenny Bruce. Uh, this album is preferred by a lot of secular critics over the first two records and i don't think that's appropriate i think this album could have been great if he had released a version of it that had heart of mine or caribbean win or the groom still waiting at the altar on it the last one was actually finally put onto the cd release later but as it is i think it's pretty compromised and i think there's only one song on it in particular uh that is a true masterpiece uh, unless the groom's still waiting at the altar is counted now what that song is I already know what Andrew is going to say, so I'm going to I'm going to toss this ball to him to hit right over the fence. <laughs> uh, that's every grain of sand, which is the last track on the album. Uh, and as Jeff alluded to, because I've said it a million times online in my extremely online career, uh, that it's a song that I want played at my funeral. <laughs> and this is coming from a secular Jew. I want a song from Bob Dylan's gospel period to be played at my funeral. Uh, and I like to think of it as like. It's the song that I, I keep using these hypothetical imagining, you know, Bob Dylan without having heard these albums. What can you see? But this is literally to me like the the platonic ideal of what would be a hit, like a Jewish songwriter like Bob Dylan basically writing a hymn. Um, and I relate to that and I've always loved it because it it's very Old Testament uh 
rhetoric. There's nothing about, there's no real, I don't think there's any worship for Jesus in it. And so it's, it reminds me very much of my upbringing, going to Hebrew school and getting bar mitzvah. It's like all the language in there is about Cain and Abel. And there seems to be some references to the, the Job story of Job. And it's very, um, it's like he wrote a universal hymn or like a universal burial song that is not necessarily Christian or it doesn't have to be. It's, it's a song. It's a spiritual song. Um, and I relate to just the, the ability to write something like that and use shape music of like, you know, the Southern gospel hymns and to write definitively just like, I, it, to me, it should be an iconic song about just not uh, for any faith. <laughs> I know that's like very lovey-dovey hippie, but like <laughs> it, it is just it, like whatever your faith is or whatever your spiritual beliefs are, it's like, it is just about life and death and uh, you, you take comfort in it and you know it's in some ways it's almost secular music it's almost like a secular hymn to me i know it's not literally a secular hymn but for me it's just a it's it's i, I can't even begin just it's my favorite bob dylan song obviously because I, I could sit here and gush about it for a long time i gaze into the doorway of temptations angry flame and every time i pass that way I always hear my name Then onward in my journey I come to understand That every hair is numbered Like every grain of sand Um, I think it's yeah. really unique almost in this gospel era as a song where there's almost a sense of doubt, mm-hmm. you know, where that, that last verse where he's like, you know, I hear those ancient footsteps, uh, you know, and, and sometimes I turn, there's someone t- there, other times it's only me, which, yeah. Is, yeah, which is, by the way, you know, this is something that is confronted rather head on, you know, in, in Christian faith, you know, doubt is a real thing and, it, and, it's, and it's a justifiable thing without doubt. Can there be faith? But it, it, it is, you know, the opposite of the, the strident, self-assured, like, oh, yes, I believe, uh, you know, sinners are going to hell, believers are going to heaven kind of stuff that he could sometimes fall into in the earlier music. This is a very humble song on top of everything else, which is, again, one of the reasons why it is so indelible. Yep. <laughs> it is uh, almost certainly the best song on the album, and... Boy, I, I know Jeff kind of summarized the, the general thought about Shot of Love when it comes to this gospel trilogy. I, I think this is the worst of the three. I, I think it's worse than, than Saved. Uh, there's some truly bad songs on here. Um, I think Lenny Bruce is a bad song. Um, I think Dead Man, Dead Man, kind of reggae beat is a bad song. Trouble. Wait, wait, Scott, are you telling me you don't think Bob Dylan's anecdote about riding in a cab with Lenny Bruce for just about a mile and a half is a profound observation? I, I think the, the real-life tribute songs might not have been the best idea throughout you know this particular era of Dylan's career, You know, dating back to, to Joey, right? Um, no. So uh, Lenny Bruce, not a good song. Uh, Trouble, I'm not a big fan of. The production on this album is poor distant vocals, really cavernous drums. I would have been interested. I guess Jimmy Iovine was originally attached to Shot of Love. And if there's one producer who really understood 
how to produce an album in the early 80s. Jimmy Iovine knew what he was doing, uh, you know, on the knobs and dials. I would have liked to have perhaps heard him finish it off. Didn't happen, of course. And so you end up with Shot of Love. The only other song I want to say two things about is, uh, or one thing about, uh, Property of Jesus, which is kind of like pressing on part two in terms of a theme. In, in today's parlance, it would be Dylan clapping back at, uh, at critics. Um, you know, go ahead and talk about him, laugh at him behind his back. Um, and, and, and the, uh, the chorus, you know, property of Jesus, resent him to the bone. You got something better. You got a heart of stone. Uh, very bitter, you know, cynical kind of, uh, kind of lyrics, uh, you know, uh, directly to those people again who were saying this is just some sort of act that Dylan was putting on, um, saying directly, no, it's, it's not. And you should kind of feel ashamed of yourself for th- even thinking that. But uh, again, outside of that, there's not an evergreen of sand, yes. There's not a whole lot on this album I like at all. I think I think I do want to say some things about the songs that didn't make the album, including one that's now on the album and people might realize was not originally included. And and then that's The Groom's Still Waiting at the Altar. That's going to be one of my, my five favorites at the end of this show. I love that song. I think it's an incredible rock track. It's this, this is probably a crazy thing to think but i almost feel like it's a prefiguring of tokyo storm warning by elvis costello <laughs> it's this sort of like tour of a crazy fallen world in all of its you know insanity you know prayed in the ghetto with my face in the cement heard the last moan of a boxer seen the massacre of the innocents and there's this great line that i have never forgotten words he says you know you try to be is classic dylan snark you try to be pure at heart and they arrest you for robbery. They may stake your shyness for aloofness and, you know, your sadness for snobbery. And that is, you know, a classic Dylan couplet played to a really rollicking guitar backbeat. And again, it's amazing because he would fail so sort of terribly at this later on through the 80s. The way he deploys female backing singers on this song and and on earlier on slow train and coming and then on saved is really well done he incorporates them in a natural way it works it's really kind of you know elemental to the groove of the piece it's just a a really underappreciated song and i think i uh, you know i don't know how underappreciated it is given that ironically enough it made it onto his greatest hits album uh you know as the sole representative from shot of love even though it wasn't actually included on the album in the first place i think somebody had a rethink later on it and said you know bob you're perverse but this is a new level of perverse he he had originally put it as just a b-side i think but that's a great song Yeah, and um, it's also like totally different than the rest of the album. But I guess that, but yeah. <laughs> um, but another thing, another interesting about Shot of Love um, is, and we're going to talk. I think we've all sort of agreed. We're going to, you know, there's a, a thought about this later on, and for later albums. But uh, there's kind of a super group 
backing on this, despite how I think it's a terrible album, aside right. from Evergreen and Ingram still waiting at the altar. Um, but beside his future wife, Carolyn Dennis, it's got uh, Ringo Starr's on drums. Um, I'm trying to remember who else. So uh, uh, Ben Montench, who played with uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yep. Uh, Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones was on it. And yet, even with all that a massive talent, it just didn't work. And then also the other thought I had, just one more thought on every grain of sand is that sort of previewing the bootleg series, uh, bootleg series one through three, which chronicles all uh, was the first stab at all the, the bootleg from from his entire career up to that point. Uh, there's a version of every grain of sand, which was the publishing demo he recorded of himself just on the piano and I guess his house. And in the background, at one point of the song, you can hear traffic outside and the wind blowing through the windows and all that. And then at one point you hear a dog barking and it's just so it's, it's almost cosmic. It's beautiful. It's great. Well, this brings us to another left turn. So after three albums of Christian music, he suddenly becomes a Zionist, um, <laughs> which is, I guess, the sort of shorthand way that people describe infidels. His 1983 release, uh, but it was recorded throughout most of 1982. And I consider this to be the sort of the great failed what-if album of Dylan's career. This could have been uh, one of his, I wouldn't say, even if it had included the stuff that it should have had on it, I don't know if I'd put it in his, his truly top-tier stuff, but it could have been you know, that album that you say is certainly his best of the 80s, maybe even better than Oh Mercy. Um, but as it is, it's a horribly compromised record because uh, this is the moment where we... we talk about the bootleg series we talk about his dylan's outtakes we've done that all throughout these episodes of the show um i don't think you can say at any point on any of his previous albums no matter what kind of quality music was left off of them that they truly like destroyed the the status of that album i i really wish that mama you've been on my mind had been on another side of bob dylan i truly wish that she's your lover now had been finished for blonde on blonde um I do not think, though, that those records are harmed in any way by their absence because the quality of the material that made it is otherwise so great. But when I look at Infidels, I think there's really only one song on this record that I consider to be a classic, and then that's Joker Man. That's the first song on this album. It's the only song that I think people really know from it, and it's a really good song. It's a really good song that still, in my mind, has some... Um, some Christian overtones to it or some spiritual overtones at the very least. I think the Joker man that he's talking about is a vaguely, uh, you know, you know, satanic figure is a, is, is a vaguely sinister figure. The Joker man dances to the light of the moon. Uh, and it, 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 it seems like a great deceiver of some sort. And I think that's a great song. It's got a very smooth musical accompaniment that goes with it. Is Knopfler playing on that song? I don't know if it is. I don't know who plays the guitar on Joker Man, but it's a beautiful guitar line.
But the rest of this record is very, I would say, almost, uh, you know, uh, it's tofu. Uh, there are interesting lyrical thoughts. I think Neighborhood Bully is a great lyric. It's yeah. about Israel. You know, he, you know, the, the, the metaphor here is that, you know, everybody accuses the neighborhood bully of beating up on everybody and being cruel and, and mean and, and being, you know, uh, unfair to his neighbors. But in reality, he's really just trying to defend himself. And it's obviously written about Israel in the context of, say, like, you know, the 73 war and his, its relationship with you know, the Arab states. It's, it, it's not super subtle, but I think it's a pretty interesting lyric. But the music isn't that good. Um, I just don't find the rest of the record to be that interesting. And then I look at the stuff that was left off of it, like Blind William McTell and mm-hmm. Foot of Pride. And tell me, there are so many wonderful songs that were taken off this record for reasons I know not even to this day that could have completely changed the way people view infidels uh, in the present day. But you know that's as maybe that's an alternate dimension what we have is the record that was released and the record that was released is just not that interesting man i disagree <laughs> well then that's this that's why the show exists go yeah. for it yeah i i i love this record and i think part of it was you know i came to it when i was it was one of you know i, I listened to all of this when i was getting into the dylan albums i was younger and much more angstier and this album just hit the right nerve especially if you know like um some of the live context around it, but you're exactly right though, that the, the songs that were left off at uh, blind Willie Mattel will be one of my five songs. I think it might be one. Sometimes I wonder if it's a better composition than every grain of sand. I think it might be like his most triumphant composition. Um, and uh, foot of pride, which is incredible. And like when I first heard it, I actually thought, Oh, this is like kind of like, a Lou Reed version of a Dylan song, and then ten years later, in Lou Reed does it at, at the uh, the Dylan anniversary concert. Yeah, um, but I, I think for me, this record uh, is his first. Is actually his only. I know this is a hot take. His punk rock record. Like a lion is the flesh of the man, sucking a woman who passes herself off as a male. They sing Danny Boy at his funeral. And the Lord's Prayer The preacher talk about Christ's betrayal It's like the earth just opened and swallowed him up He reached too high and was thrown back to the ground You know what they say about being nice to the right people on the way up Sooner or later you're gonna meet them coming down At this time, in I think it was it came out eighty three, but right after he had come down from his evangelical period, um, he was getting really into reggae and sort of dub music, and uh, I think it was his sons who turned him on to punk, and he was sneaking out. You know, hiding his face, going to see shows like X or The Clash. He was going out in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, to see these bands. And before the album was made, or I think while it was being recorded, um, he also had these sessions where he would jam with these guys, J.J. Holiday, uh, Charlie Quintana, and Tony Marsico, who are um, 
I forget the name of the band. Uh, Rats, I think. The, it's a basically a Latino punk band. I forget the name of the band that they were in. Uh, but he was jamming with them and doing these late night sessions where they would, of course, they, they said in later interviews that it was like he gave inscrutable directions, like play this song with a stripper beat with a <laughs> band laid over it or something like that was one of the quotes. Like and they had no idea what he was doing. They just tried to keep up with him. But all the songs that they did together never were recorded, but they performed in 84 right after this album came out on Letterman. Um, it's the only time this arranged, this band had ever played together uh, live and kicks ass like he does just three songs he does the sonny boy williamson cover and then i forget which songs from from infidels he does i think it's uh joker man and license to kill if i remember correct and they are he just like they are dylan goes punk but not punk that as we think of it you know as it's been sort of perverted over the years but like punk like early 80s late 70s like sweaty cbgb's at its peak just raucous, uh, jagged, almost like he was going to take out a knife and stab himself on stage kind of punk, like just gritty. And he's he's getting down on his knees and like shouting into the air during the performance. And it's crazy. And then in that context, I think of this album as being his first punk album because it has a lot of that sort of dub, like the Clash uh, the Clash ver- clash take on reggae, not like pure reggae. It's so not you're, like a- you're a big I and I fan, I take it? I love I and I. Man obviously is a, is an incredible composition in terms of that sort of like mimicking the reggae style while making like a clash song essentially. Um, License to Kill is a great song. Uh, I, literally, I, I would say I love every song on this album. Uh, Man, Man of Peace is another great one, except for I think was the lead single on this album, which was Sweetheart Like You, which is a, is a, a fine tune. I like it when I li- I don't skip it when I listen to this album, but it has arguably one of the most misogynistic. Yeah, my uh, <laughs> verses in Dylan's career and possibly in like popular rock and roll. Ah, no, there's definitely been worse in the, in the last 15 years just because of what's happened to top 40. But um, uh, the verses, you know, a woman like you should be at home. That's where you belong <laughs> for somebody nice who don't know how to do you wrong. Just how much, much abuse will you be able to take? Well, there's no way to tell by that first kiss. What's a sweetheart like you doing in a dump like this? And it's just. <laughs> outwardly saying a woman like you belongs in the kitchen essentially but no shame in it but i guess this is sort of it but in another way weird way it kind of falls in line with how he was experimenting with all kinds of weird politics on this album like there was the zionist song in neighborhood bully and then there was like other songs kind of have like reactionary politics to them like license to kill kind of it's confusing message is he condemning leaders who have the power uh you know nuclear power 
or who have the power to kill or is he saying that I, it's very, very. It's like not. It's not ham-fisted politics. And then you have Union Sundown, which Union, from the guy who wrote North Country Blues, right, right. Union Sundown, talking about how the unions are big business friend and they're going out like a dinosaur. Oh man, it's 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 a strange journey that Bob Dylan is taking. <laughs> still can't tell if he's bemoaning that that they are they've gone like the dinosaurs or not. It's like because there are parts where he's saying it's where he's sort of explaining. Uh, how you know our our shirt? I, I don't have the lyrics in front of me. Like a shirt is made here, and our our pants are made in Malaysia, and and it's confusing whether he's you know because he's talking about uh, Americans being jobless at one point. I think he alludes to, and it's like it's unclear whether he's advocating for like protectionist economic policies or he's just writing a song about unions ending. I, I'm not. Uh, or it, you, it's that it's that chorus where he's just like it's sundown. What is it? Sundown on the union and what's made in the USA. Sure was a good idea till greed got in the way. And here's the thing. You don't know what he means by greed getting in the way. Is it the greed of the unions or is it the greed of the, you know, the globalists, the you know, free traders or something like that? He, he, he plays it pretty close to the vest. But people at the time interpreted this as his like sort of Neil Young hawks and doves move. You know, when Neil Young went like Reaganite in the early 80s and people were like, what's going on, Neil? And they thought, well, now Dylan's doing it, too. Everybody's. You know, bowing to the uh, our new Reaganite overlords, but it is a more interesting song than people initially thought it was. I agree. And for me, this is a I'm closer to Jeff. Uh, I think it's a good album. It's not a great album. I actually disagree with Jeff though on Joker Man. It's one of my least favorite songs on the album. But uh, first time I heard it, I'm like, oh, here we go again, right? You know, really, I'm stunned. Yeah, Why? Um, it just doesn't do it. Um, uh, for me, I, I don't like the, the the pace of it and, and kind of the uh, general melody. Not, not a fan. Um, but I do like later on uh, Neighborhood Bell- uh, Bully, which Jeff mentioned. Lyrically great, uh, musically kind of lulls into this simple, repetitive groove, which which doesn't serve the song all that well. But lyrically, I, uh, uh, then he destroyed a bomb factory. Ain't nobody was glad. The bombs were meant for him. He was supposed to feel bad. I mean, it's that sort of message that Jeff was talking about. Not subtle, earlier. right? Not but, subtle. But I like I like the message, but yeah, you're pretty on the nose. Yeah. You know? Uh, Man of Peace, I, I think, might be the best writing uh, uh, on the album from a from both a musical and 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 lyrical uh, perspective. This idea of evil being being kind of cloaked in goodness, and Satan is going to come as a man of peace. It has a bit of Dire Straits jauntiness to it too, kind of a lightheartedness. And by the way, that's why I think people who say like, oh, the, the gospel era ended with Shot of Love are wrong because Man of Peace, that message is straight out of the book of Revelation. Yeah. Yep. You know, where, where, where the, you know, the Antichrist is supposed to be man who, in fact, Dylan would talk about this on his onstage rants. He would specifically point out like, you know, you know, the Antichrist will come and he will bring peace for years, but don't be deceived because he's still the Antichrist, which, you know, is literally in the text of the Bible if you read it. And, you know, people, People said, like, oh, well, you know, now he's doing sort of secular music. He was like, no, man, look at the lyrics. <laughs> this album is just shot through. Oh, sure. It's 
spiritual, biblical themes as much as anything on those other ones. It's just that the word Jesus doesn't happen anywhere in the lyrics. So people think like, oh, yeah, now he's back to being the Dylan that we all knew and loved. No, no. This is the, the theory of Clinton Halen, who's otherwise kind of a, a Bob Dylan biographer who I dislike. I, th- I find to be very you know, self-impressed and annoying. But he wrote a big, big thesis on the uh, gospel years, and that was sort of released in conjunction with the the bootleg series set, uh, where he points out, like, listen, Dylan doesn't talk about his faith anymore, you know, in this explicit way that he did during the gospel era. But you can hear it in all these tunes. He he still really kind of believes all this stuff. It's there in his lyrics. It never really left. It's just a lot more subtle. Mm-hmm. This, you know, it would get more and more subtle as time went by, and he found other things to write about. But it's all still there, and it's particularly in Man of Peace. Again, you know me, I can't stop talking. I interrupted you, Scott. What were you going to say? <laughs> um, part of the or the parts of the album that I generally find myself drifting to most is actually the guitar work because again mark knopfler is back on this album and i think i misspoke earlier this is the album that mctaylor's on so you have that beautiful knopfler tone through some of these songs you have mctaylor doing mctaylor things on some of these songs those are the moments that really jump out at me from infidels um i think it's good and as i said not great and considering what would come next uh, i would not call it kind of a, 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 a peak as much as it was kind of a dead cat bounce before we get <laughs> to uh, the next slew of records. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody has any particular thoughts on real live. You know, there's always a series of Bob Dylan live releases that come, you know, you know interrupting his albums. This is the one that he did on the 1984 tour. Uh, it, it's notable primarily for featuring Mick Taylor on lead guitar. I it's one of those records that I bought dutifully on CD during my completest <laughs> Dylan era as a high schooler. I listened to once and I have never listened to again. I remember that version of Tangled Up in Blue being pretty good. But beyond that, I don't have a single other coherent thought to say about it. If you do, Andrew, it's all you. Uh, the only interesting thing about it, I think he, if I remember correctly, arranges Battle of a Thin Man in, in a, a sort of bouncy, uh, you know, that period of going away. But the only other interesting note about the album is uh, Carlos Santana plays on Tombstone Blues, and it's it's interesting. Um, and then there's also, he does a couple songs from Infidels that are kind of showing that sort of jagged punk that he was getting at, the jagged punk reggae, but it, they just, it, yeah, it, it falls flat. And the sad thing is actually after Infidels, was recorded and he did that Letterman performance with those guys who actually the band was called Plugs. I just remembered. Um, they were all excited and he he hyped to them this idea of playing, showing up to random punk clubs around the city and just playing a show and not announcing it. And that was going to be the, the part of the tour for uh, Infidels. And it, it sadly never came to fruition because, well, uh, whoever knows what Dylan's thinking. <laughs> Quick story here because Jeff had mentioned. Uh, Elvis Costello with one of the, mo- the recent songs and this this period where Dylan's getting into this punk stuff and there's a, a, a story in, in Elvis Costello's book in which he and Dylan meet and I think they met in like a limo or, a, or something after a show and talked about writing and I think that was the only time they had met and a few years later uh, they were on a bill together and Elvis was, was closing uh, after Bob Dylan and so he was freaked out about the fact that, you know, here's Bob Dylan and Elvis Costello is going to close the show. He was nervous about it. I think they may have had a few words, not not mean words, but just talked a little bit. So Dylan goes out and he plays he plays 
all the hits. He plays all the songs the crowd wants to hear. He plays them, you know, as Elvis tells it, with this unbelievable enthusiasm and kills the lyrics. And, uh, and you know, walks off stage and Elvis is standing there and kind of tips his head and says, well, I, I warm him up for you. <laughs> Just, so Elvis that, like, that reminds me of Henry Rollins' famous Iggy Pop story where, where he has to follow Iggy Pop on stage and he keeps on trying to outdo him. And every time he does, Iggy just like, you know, you know rips himself up part and gives the most electrifying performance ever and he just walks by him at the end and he's just like yeah good show you know <laughs> but you know this was an interesting era because then immediately afterwards bob dylan becomes new order that's right uh, hires arthur baker to produce or really i guess in essence to remix a bunch of extremely confused recordings that end up coming out as Empire Burlesque. This is the era. We're beginning the era, just you know, to you know, sort of clarify for fans and people listening here. I, these are truly the lost years of Dylan's career. His mid-80s, really, I would argue, everything from, from, from here, 1985, all the way up to Time Out of Mind is a kind of a black hole mm-hmm. with the sole exception of Oh Mercy, which we're going to get to, which is a masterpiece, and uh, I think the acoustic covers albums that he released in the early 90s, uh, which weren't original material, and I think that was very freeing for him. But when it came to releasing his own albums of like, here's my material, my original stuff, this is just a dark period, and it really begins with Empire Burlesque, which is an album I can find almost nothing good to say about, and I think the best possible way of summarizing uh, the sad debacle of this record is When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky, which is clearly meant to be the centerpiece of this record. There's an alternate version of it on the Bootleg series, um, Volumes 1 through 3, which has him recording with uh, Max Weinberg and Roy Bitten of the E Street Band. It's a really kind of upbeat rocker. It's a little bit half-baked. They haven't settled on a final arrangement, but there's a lot of electricity, a lot of energy to it. And then you go hear the version that was originally that was fu- originally released on the album, and it is something like some sort of misbegotten, monstrous version of a song from New Order's "Low Life," an album that I love. We we did our New Order episode, you know, a couple months ago. Great album, Bob Dylan, not really the New Order type of guy. <laughs> this is the period where he starts. You can never just look at Bob Dylan and think of him as a man who's making stabs for like relevance because it's Bob Dylan. You know, this is a guy whose entire, you know, public persona is based on not caring what people think. Mm-hmm. So like, you got to think he didn't care. Why would he have cared about sounding like mid 80s sounds like something that would be played on the radio? There's, I think he just. There's actually what did a. You say? There's, there's actually a quote from, I think, around Knocked Out Loaded yeah. where Dylan says. Um, he says something along the lines of, you know, if all my albums are going to only sell so many, no matter how good they are, why, why would I bother putting that much effort into them? I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along those lines. If there, if I know that no one, if I'm not going to sell the 2 million copies of an album, why would I even spend that much time trying to create them? Um, and it, he didn't care. That's what, I mean, that's what you can just see. It's not even a creative nadir. It's a spiritual nadir. Like, he, he clearly just lost interest in the album making process and you hear it on these songs i find nothing interesting whatsoever about empire burlesque except for its last song which is a song called dark eyes yeah 
which is a really nice acoustic song. He wrote it, I think, apparently in like a day or like hours when uh, Baker said like, you know, hey, you need one more thing to do this. And he <laughs> said, all right, well, I'm going to come up with just like a really simple tune that'll end it. And it's the best thing on the record. I would never consider it a classic. They tell me to be discreet for all intended purposes. They tell me revenge is sweet. And from where they stand, I'm sure it is. But I feel no. But it's certainly better than anything else on this record. Even uh, Tight Connection to My Heart is the one song on this record that others will defend. I don't really have much good to say about it. If you want to you know, be the hot take contrarian, Andrew, now is the time to shock the world. Uh, uh, no, uh, I mean, the only thing I'll say about this album is it could have been redeemed if it wasn't produced the way it was because there are good songs in the songwriting terms. But they were all destroyed by you know mimicking New Order or like the to- or like the totally cheesiness of of Tight Connection to My Heart. Which, by the way, though everybody listening to this needs to go uh, on YouTube and watch the music video for the song. <laughs> Bob Dylan trying to act in this like neo noir film with a, like a uh, an Asian love interest, and I think it's Robert Davi is like a villain or something, and it's um, it's insane, and Bob Dylan being this like. Lothario with like two lovers at once and but yet he has this like feminine swagger when he walks it's very bizarre definitely worth your time to watch it it's the five minute song um but yeah the, uh, i remember people said to me like oh yeah that bob dylan video for must be santa that's some weird stuff i'm like buddy you gotta go see tight connection to my heart you you that's a good video you want to see a bad bob dylan video this is a bad bob dylan video like there's like smash cuts it almost looks like a parody like making fun of dramatic videos because I remember there's like there's a smash cut at one part where he's on stage in like a karaoke bar or something and it clearly doesn't line up like that whoever edited it just didn't care and it's just like he's his hand is in one position and the next shot his hand is in a totally different position and it hasn't left him on the camera <laughs> yet, so um, but uh, you know when the night comes falling from the sky the E Street version is fantastic and of course on this version it's um, uh, a steaming pile of poo and emotionally yours is also a pretty nicely written song i think uh, clean cut kid is kind of okay of a song but like again none of these things stand out or should be listened to because they ruined them in production except for dark eyes which i agree is the redeeming quality in this album okay now andrew explain to me why the song they killed him from knocked out loaded even exists <laughs> yeah i no <laughs> we got no wait is there a well, is there a story i don't know What'd you say? Sorry, I don't know. Or are you? Saying? No, I, I have no idea why it exists either. It's it's I I consider it to be the single worst song that he ever wrote, uh, and he ever recorded. And I include everything on Self Portrait or Dylan, an album we didn't even talk about in last episode's 1970s era. This is uh, a song on Knocked Out Loaded from 1986. 
an album that he recorded with the cast of Thousands, including Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which you would have thought could have maybe whipped him into shape. Although, for those who have listened to our Petty episode, they may know that this is you know 1986-87. This is also at the nadir of Petty and the Heartbreakers' creative career as well. This is when they were doing uh, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, which is their worst album by far. So I think everybody was feeling fatigued. There's one song on this record that people like. They praise, they consider it a Bob Dylan classic called Brownsville Girl. I don't. He wrote it with Sam Shepard, the playwright and the actor, who's a great actor and a great playwright and probably could be a decent songwriter, but this isn't evidence of it. It's an 11-minute-long ramble that has nothing in my mind to recommend it. I know you like it, Andrew. I don't know what you've been smoking all these years. (laughs) I like it, and uh, it's in my five songs. Um, (laughs) That's only if the criteria for the five songs is songs that I personally love the most, but I'm not sure I would say it's you have to listen to it. so, uh, but if the li- if the, it's in my list of my favorite from these from this era, and sell the world on it because I, I have never been sold. Um, well, I guess now that I'm saying it out loud, it's hard to sell. You know, it's an 11 minute uh, confused narrative song about a guy waiting in line <laughs> to see a Gregory Peck movie, but it sort of takes on the narrative that maybe he's actually he thinks he's in the film and also he's on the road with a girl and they're going to Mexico and they might have killed a guy and it has all these it's it's. And that's not really, you know, that sounds like, oh, God, that sounds that sounds terrible. Um, but for me, it's like, it's just so, it's so joyous in a way for me. Uh, when I first heard it, it, it also has an emotional connotation. You know, me and my wife, when when we were first dating, you know, she's really into music, too. And we we fell in love because she loved Springsteen. And I saw her, you know, singing along to one of his more obscure songs while I put it on. Uh, and Brownsville Girl was a song we both kind of fell in love to. Um it just it is cheesily reminiscent of a lot of um, Western films, the stuff he evokes in the song, and uh, and a lot of like sort of Woody Allen romantic songs, and then there's uh, the whole genre of running to Mexico after killing a guy type of films. Um, it's cinematic, it's goofy, it's ridiculous, and it's an epic, um, and. I, I don't know. The only way I could sell it is to say just I love it for how unabashedly weird and goofy it is. And like it sounds like Dylan's having fun and the the backup singers are used in a way that is almost like too sweet. Yes. And like that even to me makes it just it's it's almost like I take it seriously and I think it's beautiful, but it also like it, it just sounds like a fun sort of like almost mocking of how of how sappily epic it is. Uh, in its storytelling and in its the chorus with the the sort of rising uh, gospely vocals in the background, it's I don't know. Just this, my my glowing over it is should tell you if you could see the the grin on my face right. <laughs> well, if there's an original thought out there, I could use it right now. You know, I feel pretty good, but that ain't saying much. I could feel a whole lot better. If you were just here by my side to show me how Well, I'm standing in line in the rain to see a movie star with Gregory Peck Yeah, but you know it's not the one that I had in mind He's got a new one out now I don't even know what it's about 
Okay, by the way, this song is actually precisely what I'm thinking of when I said that like Dylan did a fantastic job of using the backing female vocalists, the choruses, during his gospel era, like on Slow Train and Saved, and then lost the plot in a major way during yeah. the 80s. Because when I think of those girls singing Brownsville Girl, Brownsville, I'm like, oh, good God, no, I am... It doesn't do it for me, um, Scott. Do you want to? You want to? You want to explain your thoughts on uh, "Knocked Out, Loaded," or do you want to? Well, you got to rhapsodize over his greatest triumph, Dylan and the Dead. I'm going to both uh, take us back and move us forward. So this is this is the era where, as 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 Jeff said, with "They Killed Him." Uh, my question, more often than not, is why do these things exist? Uh, if you want to cut Dylan a, a slight amount of slack on "They Killed Him," he, he didn't write it. That's a Chris Christopherson tune that he gave to Dylan, but it's terrible. It's the second track on Knocked Out Loaded. Talk about sequencing. It's a children's choir. It's awful. Why does it exist? Uh, from Empire Burlesque. I think Clean Cut Kid is is a bad song, uh, especially the, the odd juxtaposition between the kind of upbeat swing tempo and the topic of, you know, making a killer out of, out of boys who are signing up to, to fight in wars. It's just very, very odd. Um, Knocked Out Loaded, there's hardly anything I have a good word to say about. Precious Memories, there's so many songs that have like random reggae beats during this era as well. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> not a fan. Not a fan at all. Um, and I know you, you guys, you might want to mention Dylan and, and the Dead, which is just atrocious, but I'll, I'll Listen, also... I'll summarize Dylan and the Dead this way. Go ahead. Bob Dylan, one of my favorite artists of all time. The Grateful Dead, one of my favorite artists <laughs> of all time. The greatest live band that has ever existed. This should be great. Dylan and the Dead, 10-minute long version of Joey. That's all you need to know about Dylan and the Dead. And I got nothing more to say about that steaming piece of shit. So it's, uh, it's joyless. Uh, totally joyless. But uh, I don't know if I'm stealing your thunder, but Dylan and the Dead, don't forget, Down in the Groove was one of these terrible period albums. Where, and basically all the Dead was on that album. Jerry Garcia was on it. Bob Weir was on it. Knopfler was back on it. He had Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. Randy Jackson was on it. Eric Clapton played guitar on it. And yet, <laughs> I mean... Here, I, we, I think Down in the Groove is terrible. And I, I think Jeff's going to offer it a qualified defense. I think Down in no, the no, Groove... No, 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 no. I, I had, a, had a moment of madness earlier this week. <laughs> email. No, no. You guys, I, I emailed Scott and yeah. Andrew. And I was like, I'm just listening to Down in the Groove today for the first time in 15 years. And this isn't a bad album. I might have to defend it as a good album. And Scott immediately shot back at me. He's like, no, Jeff, you're high. And this then is... I listened to it a second time. And I was like, I realized that, in fact, I was high. Um, it's not a good album. There are there's there's one song on it that I'll defend. I like "Rank Strangers" to me. Yes, that is the uh, one is song. A, a beautiful cover of a, of a, for a traditional ballad. Dylan's voice on that singing again. He he seems so much more comfortable singing lyrics by other people. Um, but my lord, the rest of this album is just a mess. The production is so scattershot. There's sessions that are from like 1983 all the way up to 1989, which is when the album finally came out. Uh, it's technically, or 1988 is when it came right. out. They sat on it and for a year. He had it done for a year, and Columbia wouldn't put it out for a year. That's what they thought of it. And they, they, they ran for like 17 different track listings of it, too. Like They couldn't even agree on like what songs should be on the album. You'd think that they were like working it over like Smile by Beach Boys, <laughs> but... but 
instead it was Down in the Groove by Bob Dylan. These two albums, you know, Knocked Out Loaded, three albums really, Knocked Out Loaded, Dylan and the Dead, uh, Down in the Groove, kind of regularly acknowledged as the absolute pit of Dylan's career. Um, I know that there are people who like Death is Not the End, and I like Death is Not the End. I like that Nick Cave cover of it a lot that was done later. Um, I think this version is just merely adequate. It's it's kind of it's tired. A, way, it's just... a way of taking a great song and kind of sabotaging it. Silvio's also, Silvio's always like, um, it's always almost an obligatory inclusion on his greatest hits compilations, but it's it's a good song ruined by the production once again. I think like Shenandoah too, his cover of the traditional is, is like kind of ruined and muddled by how boring, every, by how bored everybody sounds. But the thing about Silvio is, uh, to emphasize how good of a song it could have been if it were probably arranged a little differently and produced like anybody actually cared, is that it was, I think, his first um, collaboration with... He was trying to... St- uh, speaking of Dylan and Dead, he, was, yes. uh, he took Jerry Garcia's writing partner, Robert Hunter, and wrote his first song with him, and that's mm-hmm. Silvio, and it's... It, again, it's a good song, but it's just, like, not listenable in this, in this, in this album. Give what I got until I got no more I'll take what I get till I score was over oh wait scott what were you gonna say i just said ugliest girl in the world terrible mean <laughs> stupid song it's just and it's sally sue brown is is bad with this ridiculous backing grunting vocals bad all all the way all the way around. i'll admit i kind of like ugliest girl in the world precisely because it's so mean <laughs> and stupid it is it's a mean and stupid lyric that is about the ugliest girl in the world and Boy, you know, talk about lyrics that would not fly in 2018. Yes. <laughs> uh, that is that is one of them, uh, and I think precisely for that reason, the same reason that I like like Genesis as a legal alien. <laughs> talk about like big hit in 1983 that would yeah. just never in a million years be written today. Dude looks I, like I a do lady. Appreciate it for not that, today. That but this is the moment where you said that uh, Bob Dylan's career is surely over. His creative flame must have been extinguished, snuffed out. And he's going to become a nostalgia act like the sad, pathetic remnants of The Who or maybe, you know, in a slightly better version of that world, the Rolling Stones touring their greatest hits and putting out, you know, albums that nobody cared about. Uh, But then what happened is that at the behest of all people, Bono, Bono Vox, a.k.a. Paul Hewson, the lead singer of U2, uh, Bob Dylan hooked up. Uh, they, they had met, by the way. Dylan and, and U2 had met on uh, U2's Rattle and Hum tour, where they recorded a duet on Rattle and Hum, the album called Love Rescue Me, which is not a very good song, in my opinion. Uh, but the one good side effect of it is that Bono said, hey, you really should use our producer, a guy we've worked with who we really have a lot of respect for, a guy da- named Daniel Lenoir. And that resulted in Oh Mercy, from 1989, that given the trajectory of Dylan's career, might as well been an album of miraculous necromancy. <laughs> this, after years, 
years and years and years. And, and if you don't like the gospel era, then that might take us all the way back to, say, Desire in terms of great Dylan music. And I disagree with you because I think Slow Train is a great album. Mm -hmm. I think there's good stuff on, on a lot of those, even up to and including Infidels. But if you didn't like that, it had been over a decade since Dylan had been musically relevant. And then suddenly, Oh Mercy came out, and it was like he was reborn. This is a masterpiece, a shocking, I would say late period, if not for what comes later on down the line, masterpiece. And it is universally recognized as such. I wonder, does anybody have any contrarian takes or thoughts on what I, I, I consider to be one of the smokiest and most low-key records of his career? I'm not a contrarian on this one. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it would be one of it would be one of his three best albums if he swapped out "Political World" for, which I think is like the kind of the only mediocre song on this album. Every song, every other song on this album to me is gorgeous and perfect. Uh, and "Political World" could have been subbed out for a B-side uh, outtake, which there are many versions of on all the bootleg series called "Dignity," which is one of his better piano ballads and would have fit perfectly on this record. Um, but other than that, it's a 99.9 for me. I don't, I don't think it's a... I would not call it a, a masterpiece. I do think it's very good and certainly an unexpected return after the uh, uh, the string of albums that preceded it. Uh, it's produced so much better. <clears throat> I mean, the album just sound... The songs just sound better than they have in years. I actually kind of like Political World. It was Anthony DeCurtis wrote... Uh, Dylan does these State of the Union songs uh, on, on most albums. Like, here's, here's, here's what I think of America right now, and here's what's going wrong, and here's, you know... And Political World's kind of one of those songs I think works well. I, I like the kind of groove, and, the, and his lyrics kind of dance on top of the rhythm. I, I, I like Political World. Uh, later on in the album, Everything is Broken, which until <laughs> until I had heard Old Mercy, didn't know was a... Uh, the, the, uh, the Kenny Wayne Shepherd band did a cover of Everything is Broken years years ago, and I, I did not know that was originally a Dylan tune. Now I do. Uh, Ring Them Bells, that's lyrically an excellent, excellent song. I, I don't know how far you go back to find a song lyrically that's as good as Ring Them Bells on, on Oh Mercy. And again, I think uh, Lenoir's production is, is just perfect with the song. Simple piano, uh, organ, Vocals, very, very good. Ring them bells, sweet mother, for the poor man's son. Ring them bells so the world will know that a God is one. For oh, the shepherd is asleep where the willows weep, and the mountains are filled with the lost sheep. Ring them bells. For the blind and the deaf Ring them bell For all of us who are left Ring them bell For the chosen few Who will judge the many When the game is through Ring them bell For the time that flies Shooting Star has a gorgeous introduction. The harmonica returns. Um, I, I'm not sure it quite sustains its strength, which is why I don't call it, you know, a magnificent re return to form. But it's a real album, right? The songs 
pretty much fit together. It, it, it sounds like there was some care attached to it in that this is something that perhaps Bob Dylan wanted you to hear as opposed to a odd collection of B-sides and outtakes and rewritten songs from six years ago to put some product on the shelf. Um, judging by those standards, a complete and total success. The story of Oh Mercy for me is the story of what happens when Dylan gets matched up with a producer who has a clear vision for him and says, this is what I I really see for you. This mm-hmm. is what I'd like you to do. And he talks with him about it. And they actually work something out together. A lot of people have had ideas of where they want to take Dylan. And, of course, Dylan is usually not going to go along with them. Uh, and although Dylan has, has sometimes had issues with Lanois, they've worked together on two major albums. This is the first of them. Uh, he got great sound out of him. And I think it's also telling that he also got fantastic outtakes out of him. How do you know that, that a Dylan uh, album session was truly uh, fantastic? It's when the outtakes are nearly as wonderful as the songs that were released themselves. And this one, you know, throughout not only the records, the songs that you see on the record, those 10 songs, but also Dignity, uh, which I will say is one of my top five songs, one of the, be- the top five Dylan songs from this era. Um, it was finally released on Greatest Hits Volume 3 as like the bonus track. I think there was an extra guitar that was overdubbed on top of it. But it is just a, a truly inspiring, rollicking rock song. He's got banjos playing, guitars. Uh, you got Dylan singing, I think, in his most charismatic. There's this great line where he says, you know, Englishman stranded in a black heart wind, combing his hair back, his future looks thin. He bites the bullet. And he looks within for dignity. And I always thought to myself when I was a 13-year-old kid listening, and I was like, well, you know, that's the kind of guy I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and instead, I'm me. right? But then there's the, he follows it up with that great little line in the middle eight. He's like, somebody showed me a picture, and I just laughed. Dignity never been photographed. Just tossed off dialect lyric that showed he had gotten his muse back. Englishman stranded in a black hot wind. Combing his hair back, his future looks thin Bites the bullet, and he looks within For dignity Someone showed me a picture and I just laughed Dignity never been photographed I went into the red, went into the black Into the valley of dry bone trees So many roads, so much at stake Too many dead ends, I'm at the edge of the lake Sometimes I wonder what it's gonna take To find dignity really brought it out of him on this album. And then the other thing I would say about Oh Mercy is that the sound of it is very curious. You listen to it, starts with Political World, then it goes into Where Teardrops Fall, and then the first impression you get is that it almost feels muffled. After all this sort of unpleasant, in a way, 80s clarity, modern sound techniques, Lenoir is, despite the fact that he has this reputation of producing albums with U2, which were the height of 80s you know, modernity, he gives him a very 
old-fashioned muffled sound that he would in a way recreate later on time out of mind that really serves dylan well it serves him in particular well on a song like man in the long black coat which i think may be the best song on this record um even though it's great it's just a mystery song it's a song about uh a a figure uh, of you know unknowable menace and you know power you know there's that that, the the scene setting stuff that he comes you know crickets are chirping and the water is high there's a soft cotton dress on the line hanging dry you know and then they they talk about this guy like somebody saw him hanging around at the old dance hall on the outskirts of town there's dust on the man in the long black coat it's just a beautiful series of images that paints a picture of uh, a classic Dylan-esque figure, and he sings it with such menace, and it's produced with such restraint. There's smoke on the water, it's up in there since June. Tea trunks uprooted beneath the high crescent moon. Feel the pulse and vibration and the rumbling force. Somebody is out there beating on a dead horse. She never said nothing, there was nothing she wrote She gone with a man in the long black coat This is a very restrained album. There are no loud moments on it. There are no big rock moments on it, which may be why Dignity didn't make it, because that's too anthemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Series of Dreams, for that matter, is another great outtake from this. They made it onto the Bootleg series. Great song, too anthemic, too visionary. Not what Dylan was going for on Oh Mercy. Oh Mercy was almost him in playing a character, going for a certain style very much the way he would do later on and with similar success on albums like Love and Theft and uh, on Time Out of Mind. I think it's a fantastic album. And all of this makes it even that much more inexplicable that his follow-up to the stunning critical success of Oh Mercy was one of the worst albums of his career, (laughs) which is Under the Red Sky, about which I can only say wiggle, wiggle, wiggle like a bowl of soup. The opening song on this album with George freaking Harrison playing the guitar solo, no less. Terrible song on a terrible album produced by Don Was, mm-hmm. who's like a you know classic rock producer that, that a lot of our listeners will have been familiar with. There isn't a single thing on this album of any redeeming value except maybe Harrison's solo on Under the Red Sky and uh, an outtake from Oh Mercy called Born in Time that was re-recorded on this album, but to, I think, much less effect than the Oh Mercy version, which you can now hear, you know, on the Bootleg series. Um, I got nothing really good to say about Under the Red Sky, and it kind of began what ended up being mostly a lost decade again for Dylan. Yeah, you know, and uh, again, this is fitting the thesis we've kind of repeated throughout this this uh, period of his career is, uh, this is the V album that is basically a super group mm-hmm. uh, and it's a complete complete failure I would say it's his worst album ever um, if you consider if you don't consider Christmas in the heart like a, like an actual record as opposed to a novelty record but I like that album right. <laughs> Uh, but it has David Crosby on it and like you said George Harrison you got uh, I think Stevie Ray Vaughan was on it yep. 
you hooked up with Al Cooper again. Elton John was on and Randy Jackson, Bruce Hornsby, uh, who was kind of coming off playing with the dead a little bit. And I, if I remember, I thought Bono was on this too. Um, but I, I, I don't see him listed in the, uh, in the personnel, but, um, and yeah, it's just a complete failure. Like, I think I've listened to it maybe twice in my life. I tried to, I think it was the first time I hated it. The second time I, I was me just giving it an earnest try. And <laughs> I've, I've just since disregarded it. Wiggle Wiggle was just too much for me. You guys have hit basically everything to say about this album. Um, I, I, you know, this was right around just after Traveling Wilburys did well, which was an actual super group. And so I, I don't know, you figure you put a, a bunch of famous people on the record, it would do do well. And um, and Andrew ran down all the giant names on this album, and it turned out just terribly. Uh, in terms of, you know, why does this exist? 10,000 Men, 2 by 2 are both just terrible songs. Especially lyrically, <laughs> lyrically awful songs. I'm glad you said that, because my comment was going to be like, I, I, I really hope that the second half of this album doesn't have Hidden Genius on it, because I got through the first five <laughs> songs uh, when I went back to listen again for our show, and I quit. I just said, I just said no. screw this, and I went on as good as I've been to you. There, there is no reason to continue, which, which is almost perhaps what Dylan said, because he would go from under the Red Sky, this uh, you know, uh, album of, of, of originals to back-to-back albums of complete cover songs in the early '90s. Do you know? Do you know the quote that he said at this time, which, which, I mean, felt really sad at the time. Um, he said, like, you know, people ask me, like, you know, why am why am I not writing more songs? He's like, there used to be a time when they would come to me three or four at a time. These days they don't, you know, I, I'm older and things have changed, you know, I, every now and then a song will insist on being written, but, uh, you know, maybe I've just written enough songs for my life, you know, you know, isn't that enough, you know, is there anything wrong with that, which ironically enough, you could almost have transplanted into the modern era and it would have a much happier tinge to it given his more recent work, mm-hmm. but at the, in that time, uh, especially coming off of Under the Red Sky and the disappointment in light of Oh Mercy, people thought, well, he's beginning, he's on the upswing again, and then immediately did this this crater. Uh, he released these two albums of cover music, uh, blues covers, old kind of murder ballads, and very obscure things. Um, the first of these sort of was the more Catholic cover, more general set of covers, you know, things that you might have even heard mm-hmm. if you're a rock fan, like Sitting on Top of the World, or... Um, uh, Arthur McBride, if you're a fan of Irish anti-recruiting songs. But says Arthur, I wouldn't be proud of you cause well, you've only the end of them as I suppose And you dare not change them one night for you know If you do, you'll be long in the morning And although that we're single and free We take great delight in our own it's called Good As I've Been To You. And uh, then the second one was released immediately after it called World Gone Wrong. They're always treated as like a pair, a couple of albums. I think they're both pretty good. I think Dylan as an interpreter of traditional ballads is something that dates all the way back really to his earliest years in 1961 you hear him doing the stuff before he'd written his own material go to the basement tapes and he's just whipping out tons of really obscure old songs i like this style of his 
he really likes to pick songs where lyrics speak to him and mean something to him. So he usually ends up putting some interpretive spin on them that, 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 that ends up being interesting and worthwhile. But I also think that the, um, and I spent a lot of time listening to both of these for our show again. I think the second one world gone wrong is, is clearly the better of the two. Yes. Um, but you've really got to have to be in a mood for, you know, gut bucket acoustic music recorded in someone's garage with a guy who's got a voice that sounds like, you know, a cheese grater. If you're not into that, <laughs> these are not for you. I, I agree. World gone wrong, I think is way better. And for me, it's, it is, uh, you know, a lot of people think of when first when Bob first came like, on the on the Greenwich Village folk scene, he was trying to emulate, you know, Woody Guthrie and hobo folk artist. And I think in um, in uh, in the movie that was made about him by Todd Haynes, I'm drawing a blank on the name all of a sudden. Even though I'm, I'm not there, I'm not there. There's a whole there's one character that is supposed to be a stand in for Dylan, which is a young black boy hopping trains and pretending to be Woody Guthrie. And that's like the early Dylan, you know, who he wanted to sound like he wanted to sound like Woody. This is. His blind with like blind Willie McTell album. This is his Sonny Boy Williamson. He is he is he is. This is just a dirty uh, folk blues. It's Tim playing the blues because he never really you know his blues were always kind of ironic in the '60s. And this is just a straight up blues record. It's like it's like Bob Dylan goes lead belly, um, and it's it's superb and it's really dark. Blood in my eyes is such a great traditional. It's just a very negative record. You got Staggerly, you got Jack Perot. Um They're all love those. Hen- love Henry. Yeah, it's like as I said, murder ballads. So many murder ballads. Yes. <laughs> right around when Nick Cave did his murder ballads album too. But right. Yeah, it, it's it's dark, it's gritty, and it's it's the blues. And the, you know, it's not like he's sitting there doing you know uh, slide guitar tricks or doing any kind of thing like that. Like he didn't fully become. He didn't sell his soul at the crossroads. But <laughs> it's. Uh, it's a great Dirty Blues record. Well, I actually do think it's a good album to get kind of reacquainted with Dylan's skills as an acoustic guitarist. He, you yeah. know, for he's been playing it for like fifty flipping years. He's good at it, and so like there are songs like "Broke Down Engine," which is a a blind William McTell song, of course, of all things. That is a really percussive, fascinating rhythm track. That it's, it's all done by Dylan again, just sitting in his garage. Somebody pushing the button and he plays. That is a really impressive acoustic guitar performance. We forget yes. about the fact that Bob Dylan, before he was Bob Dylan, capital B, capital D, could could play a pretty mean blues riff and a pretty pretty mean blues song, which is how he was able to even get known in the first place. Yeah, and again, agreed. World Gone Wrong is the better of these two records. The, the songs are a little more uh, of a unit uh, thematically performance is i think the performance is a little better on world gone wrong too andrew mentioned you know the title track blood of my eyes ragged and dirty is a good one and even um uh, lone pilgrim which i think is the the last song on the album is is a little 
calmer, a little more, uh, a little more serene, but it ends uh, on that note. Uh, I like that quite a bit. Uh, that again, you know, it's 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 hard to get incredibly excited about you know two batches of songs, two albums worth of material, in which Dylan did not play any role in actually writing the songs, arranging, yeah, but not writing. Um, but that that would come. It would come, but in the meantime, the rest of the nineties are just kind of a wash. He has the twentieth thirtieth anniversary concert in ninety ninety two. Eh, I don't know. It's a fun little tribute album. MTV Unplugged, an live album that you never need to hear. First of all, it's not unplugged, so I don't know why they even bother to call it that anymore. <laughs> um, and I don't think they it's wanted to call it MTV. Good. They don't play music anymore, right? Well, that yeah, <laughs> and MTV doesn't play music anymore either, right? I don't think it's a particularly distinguished live album. And um, he released Greatest Hits Volume Three, which is actually notable because it does include Dignity, which I love so much. Um, the bootleg series came out around this time, which I think was the really big news news making item in his career. The, that the, that first volume one to three set. Um, so everyone just kind of thought that Dylan was sort of fading into obscurity, and that you know, an amazing career, one of the greatest singer songwriters in the history of popular music. But his race was run. You know, this was this, this he was washed up basically, and and there's no shame in that because there's always a sell by date. For artists, you know, you usually have only a certain amount of genius in you, mm-hmm. and then you're done. And that's fine. You know, it, there's nothing wrong with growing old. We shouldn't stigmatize the fact that you, you can't always be great forever. There isn't a single artist we have ever covered on Political Beats who could just keep going on and on until eternity, uh, until the day they died, uh, unless they died young. Uh, and then Bob Dylan put out Time Out of Mind and put the lie to all of that shocking the world, shocking me, shocking you, shocking everybody with an album that was, I consider to this day, uh, inaugurated the single greatest late career artistic revival of any artist in popular music. The only other one that even comes close might be Neil Young with Freedom coming at the end of the 80s after that long fallow period and in, in, in the rest of that decade. But this is so much more powerful than that. What comes from this, these these next few albums that come after it are just an amazing run that you never thought he had in him. This is what happens when he hooks back up again with Daniel Lanois. Uh, maybe he recognized that that he brought something great out of him with Oh Mercy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he brings something truly amazing out of him on Time Out of Mind, which is, I think, the only time Bob Dylan has ever sounded modern. And in a way that isn't fake or phony, like he sounded modern on When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky on Empire Burlesque, but in a really awful chintzy way with Arthur Baker synthesizers. It's trying to sound like New Order. It's phony. But on Cold Irons Bound or Trying to Get to Heaven or Not Dark Yet, he sounds like he is there, modern. The music sounds real. It sounds raw. It sounds powerful. The lyrics are up to snuff. If it weren't for the inclusion of Highlands, which I think is actually, you know, 16 minutes long and probably one of his least convincing, quote unquote, epic songs, this would be, you know, top five, top six Dylan in my list. I still consider it to be a masterpiece. And I will also say this, that in my mind, this is the album. If David Lynch could make an album that came out of his head for soundtrack music, 
this would be that album. This sounds like a David Lynch movie set to music. This could be the soundtrack to Twin Peaks or Inland Empire or Wild at Heart or all those films. If you're trying to, if you've never heard this album before, you want to understand what it sounds like. It sounds like Twin Peaks set to music. <laughs> and that is a great, great thing. I'm a huge David Lynch fan. So I don't think anybody disagrees with me on this one. You guys just take it away. You know, leading up to the recording, think about that. You know, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is so uns- unsure of himself. He's he's gone to Minnesota, his farm in Minnesota. He writes this batch of lyrics. And he doesn't know what to make of him. He calls up uh, Daniel uh, Lanois and says, let's meet. And he meets him in a hotel room. And he literally reads him these lyrics that he's written and asks the producer, asks Daniel Lanois, what do you think? Do we have an album here? That is how uncertain one of the best songwriters in music history was at this time, what, six, seven years after his last original album, which stiffed and was a bad, bad album. And he comes up with this album, which I, I just tell you, the first time I heard this, it just knocked me on my butt. Um, this is, I think there's a, this is my favorite of this, you know, this late career trilogy. This is my favorite of the three. Um, I don't know if you can make a case that it's his, his best. I, I think clearly you can make a case that it's, it's, it's in the top five, uh, depending on the time of day and the day of the week. There's, you know, different sides of Bob Dylan that it might strike you. But, you know, in, in revisiting this for this show, man, do I love this album. Um, and Lenoir's production is such a big part of it. These really densely detailed production, uh, produced songs, uh, dark, uh, atmospheric um, little touches all over the place. And Dylan does his part, both in terms of the lyrics that he brings to the table and in terms to that voice, that voice that uh, Jeff mentioned in an email uh, today, but I already had it written down. It's it's more Tom Waits than Tom Waits himself. It is just creaking and 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 just exhausted and tired, and it fits perfectly. Um, I, I I think Lenoir's production on Time Out of Mind is just is just brilliant, brilliant. And the, the funny thing is that Dylan himself complained about it. I know, later. and they fought. They fought throughout the whole recording process, reportedly about about how it was kind of uh, going. But I think you know, there's this there's this certainly um, theme of mortality all over it. Um, it's almost it deserves to be it deserves to be shrouded in mist. Yes, and and be lost in that that fog that haze. And, and right, because of those lyrics. In, in the same way that Highway sixty one had this sense of foreboding and and menace, uh, Time Out of Mind has it in a different way, but very similar themes. Um, let me just hit uh, a few songs quickly. If if you're not thinking out, or if you're you know just trying to remember things, the odd numbered tracks on Time Out of Mind really do it for me. So Lovesick, track one. Uh, which was a was a single. I think he performed that at the Grammys, and it was in a Victoria's Secret ad. Soy bomb oh. incident at the Grammys. That's right, the soy bomb. But uh, yeah, the first time you hear Dylan's voice, it is exhausted and bathed in like this slapback echo, and it just crawls out of the music that has been that has been set up in the song. Um, and, and this this tale uh, set to this kind of warped guitar, these warped guitar flourishes, and the mood is set right on track one, and the and and the whole song is is well as the title said, lovesick. But of course, the twist at the end 
as as kind of the instrumentation drops a bit is you know just don't know what to do i do anything to be with you uh, how love sick are you i'm sick of love i wish i never met you i'm sick of love i'm trying to forget you Just don't know what to do I'd give anything to be with you Standing in the Doorway uh, And I think this is the first track that Cindy Cashdollar plays, uh, plays on this wonderful slide. Um, and she played with Ryan Adams and the Cardinals on Cold Roses and was fabulous. Uh, Cindy Cashdollar's here. She's on Not, Not Dark Yet. And I think one other song. Standing in the Doorway is almost eight minutes, but it needs it the way that this unfolds uh, and, and tells the story of uh, like this outsider theme. Um, and again, lyrically, um, you know, I, I'd be crazy if I took you back and go against every rule and don't know if I saw you, if I'd kill, uh, kiss you or kill you. Uh, standing in the doorway is a killer track. I know the mercy of God must be near. I've been riding a midnight train. Got ice water in my veins. I would be crazy. If I took you back He would go up against Every rule He left me standing In the doorway crying Suffering Like a fool Trying to get to heaven is is fantastic um not dark yet might be the best track on the album very sparse uh, the vocal not quite as bathed as it is in other songs but this idea of um of a guy i mean kind of autobiographical even though bob tells us he never writes autobiographically but a guy who has seen success a guy who yeah a guy who has traveled the world but is still crushed by the loss of love in his life in this sense that that uh, you know the, the end is near maybe not tomorrow but again that this theme of mortality is all over the place on time out of mind i love dylan's lyrics i love the production this is this is just a knockout album for me yeah uh this is i put it at number three overall when i listed uh when i ranked bob dylan's albums for the daily beast um and I think Jeff's exactly right in sort of describing it as a Lynchian soundtrack. I, I, before you ever said that, I used to think of it as the soundtrack to like uh, an old Cadillac driving through a desert road <laughs> at night in the dark. And the only light is far away in the distance, a reflection of the headlights off like a road sign. Yeah, it could and be like, it, a, like a Robert Mitchum noir film, black and white, maybe. Like you know? scene of Blood Simple where they're just riding yes. out on a Texas flatland. Uh, Same territory. basic idea, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's no headlights in the distance. And, it, and in behind the seat, you know, behind the driver, uh, behind the steering wheel is 
a 56 year old man, 56, pondering death and and lost love in this very gritty sort of like um, Cormac McCarthy in way. Like he's he, he's seen some shit, man, and you know he probably killed a guy. And uh, <laughs> it's very western. And my one thing I always think about it just as a musician, I always think is like. This is a cohesive album, and you could tell the production was thought out and and yeah. and applied to each and every song in a very similar way. Is that I, I've always come away from this album thinking there is this lulling, almost um, low hum, as if uh, I've spent a lot of time in the desert, like in the Joshua tree, uh, tree area, and sometimes when you go out at night, there's silence, but the silence is almost like this low hum, mm-hmm. and that's throughout this entire album. Every moment of it, it's almost like no matter what key he's in, there's that low hum. Um, it's like it's desert music. It's um, but not even just literally. It's desert music of like desert of the soul, which sounds like a stoner phrase. But it's like <laughs> it's about all those themes that come with thinking about, you know, about what it would be like to be on like a 10 hour drive through a desert road thinking to yourself that, you know, I'm, I'm going to die at some point And, you know, uh, it, uh, I. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with Jeff too. That Highlands is a little too long. It feels a little self-indulgent, and Dylan being self-indulgent with this album is kind of weird. But um, <laughs> and also the point that it's very modern is is a fascinating. I hadn't thought about that, but this is the last album before he really starts to just embrace his ability to write in almost kind of a tongue-in-cheek manner at times, like classic swing band and mm-hmm. um, you know early rock and roll and rockabilly and like he starts self-producing after this yes, album. Yeah. And, and- this is the last album that he gave over to like an outside producer, certainly a name producer. And yeah, I, I, I know he probably got fed up by doing endless retakes and you know, having you know, all these bands brought in to like work with him in his own very difficult way, but it was worth the effort. I loved what Andrew said about this being like desert music and the, yes, hippie and, and stoner, though it may be desert of the soul. That's why I, I think my favorite song on this album is Cold Irons Bound, which is an even track. I might point out, Scott, it's the eighth song <laughs> on the record. Um, uh, it, first of all, musically, it, it's chord modulations are just a little bit different than what you normally expect from Dylan, who usually works on the traditional folk, you know, you know, progressions. But there's these lines in it, like, you know, like the road is rocky and the hillside is mud up over my head. Nothing but clouds of blood. I found my own uh, in my one in you. But your love just didn't prove true. I'm 20 miles out of town and cold irons bound. And I don't even know what it means to be cold irons bound. Is that a place? Is that a a, a sort of colloquial phrase that I'm unfamiliar with? All I know is that. It ain't nothing good to be bound for cold irons, whatever it is. Yeah. 
you, you are going to a dark place. This is like Lost Highway music. This is Lynch music. This is very dark music, but is utterly compelling for all of that. And I, again, you know, I remember being a kid and, uh, you know, I was a big Dylan fan at this point. So it would have been uh, 97, mm-hmm. I was 16 years old. And I remember hearing that he had like a near-death experience. Uh, I think it was like histoplasmosis or something like that. He inhaled like bad air coming off of the river of his house. And he got like a, a lung infection that went to his heart and he almost died. And then like like two months later, this album comes out. And, of course, I'm thinking to myself, well, this had, clearly had to have been inspired by his near-death experience. It wasn't. It was in the can long before that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you can't understand. Maybe you can if you were there. I don't know how old Andrew was. But, like, you know, after all these years, being a big Dylan fan and just sort of accepting the fact that he's not doing anything relevant now. It's over. That's fine. You know, the Beatles had to break up, too. Then all of a sudden, here comes time out of mind. Oh, wow, the critics are saying this is a really good album. You pick it up. You finally buy it. You put it in, and you hear music like this. I was not prepared for this. This is one of those moments that, again, this is just what I treasure about music. This is why I do this show, is because it just braced me. It gave me shivers. It made me realize there was more than what I had expected. It threw a curveball that ended up hitting me straight in the heart. That's why Time Out of Mind is one of my favorite albums that Bob Dylan has ever done. It's why even though you people are going to say that like Love and Theft may be more accomplished, you know that there are songs like Highlands, for example, that aren't as good on this one, this is the one that sticks in my heart. This is the one that, again, inaugurated the most unlikely late career renaissance of any artist of the rock era. I, I can't say enough good things about it. And, of course, that brings us to love and theft. And so the question, I guess, is a lot of people, maybe even critical consensus, hold that love and theft is even better than time out of mind. I know, Andrew, you're not going to agree with that. How about you, Scott? What do you think? I, I don't agree with it. I think time out of mind is the best, uh, again, of this of this late career trilogy. They're, they're, they're companion albums, but they're very different. And, you know, Dylan produced this this one himself. Um, you know, it's much freer and looser. Um, it's a lot of what Time Out of Mind is is not. And yet the, the songwriting still is at a level that we had not seen in years and years. But the playing is free and loose. This is a band that he had been touring with for quite a long time by this point. They are very familiar. They are very competent. I think even Dylan remarked at some point, you know, this is perhaps doing Love and Theft the least amount of studio teaching he had to do with with people playing on the album he didn't have to say you know play a little less here or bend this note there they really understood each other um and it is a fantastic album i'm not trying to slight love and theft by saying it's not quite as good in my mind as time out of mind love and theft is is really great um and i think mississippi which is the second track on the album doesn't get a whole lot better than mississippi uh from Bob Dylan. I mean, this is a knockout song. Uh, Sheryl Crow did a cover of it, I think, on the Globe Sessions. And then Dylan himself did it on, on Love and Theft. This is fantastic. A rock-solid rhythm section through this song. This is a mandolin. Um, this ascending guitar uh, chords through, through the chorus. And some of the lyrics, man, are just, you know, walking through the leaves, falling from the trees, feeling like a stranger nobody sees. So many things that we will never undo. I know you're sorry. I'm sorry, too. Uh, Mississippi is a fantastic song. So many things 
sorry, I'm sorry too Some people will offer you their hand and some won't Last night I knew you, tonight I don't I need something strong to distract my mind I'm gonna look at you till my eyes go blind Well, I got here following the southern star uh, Lonesome Day Blues. Um, you know, there's not a lot of truly up-tempo numbers on Time Out of Mind. You know, if you're, again, trying to score a David Lynch film, you wouldn't have a whole lot of up-tempo blues, <laughs> perhaps. But this this album does have a couple of those. Lonesome Day Blues is pretty much a straight blues song. Um, and one of his most ravaged and, and growled-out vocals. And a great riff on Lonesome Day Blues. Um, on, the, on the blues uh, topic, Cry A While, late on the album... I love it because you expect it to do one thing and then it does something else. You expect this kind of straight, almost, you know, kind of straight 12-bar blues kind of song, and the tempo shifts back and forth between verse and chorus. Um, I, I like what he did with that quite a bit. High Water is a high point. Larry Campbell's banjo, so good on High Water. And the vocal delivery and vocal phrasing on High Water, and then we talked about this last episode, the way Dylan kind of twists and turns these phrases to kind of fit the melody uh the way he does that on high water is, is fantastic so i mean love and theft is is it's, it's a very different album and yet in terms of quality it's it's very similar to time out of mind but i will always have time out of mind a little higher because it is unlike anything else in the catalog and and to me is such a cohesive unit of an album but love and theft is also fantastic yeah and it, uh, a friend of mine in the uh, uh, not in journalism uh in the music business told me that uh this album well, uh, as people would know if they've looked it up but this album came up i uh, came out on 9 11 yep uh, and my friend who uh, was talking about this album with me was saying that uh it really, to him, is the, is is like the nine eleven recovery album, and he knows a lot of other Dylan fans who think that because it it cemented that Dylan is back, and it was something to hold on to when things seemed to be collapsing, and it was a, a joyous record. I mean, it's him making, uh, as I kind of hinted when we were talking about Time Out of Mind, where he you know he was going to start embarking on this journey of sort of making Tin Pan Alley music with a lot of uh, drum with a lot of. Uh, brushed drums and a lot of uh you know throwbacks to pre-rock songwriters and mm-hmm. um, you know early rockabilly before it got its like uh street gang edge and this is that record it's 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 swampy and it's it's uh you know it feels retro which probably is why it's not as cool i think as time out of mind it's you know it has its sort of corny throwback to like you know even my grandmother would love this album which is not a bad thing and i <laughs> with my grandmother um <laughs> high water is well high water is the song that's closest to a time out of mind tonally and also like it's just he plays it live all the time now and it's it, to me it defines like how if you know people malign his later live period because he sounds like a frog on stage but like charlie the performances of high water um live are just to me it shows that he's just this tight blues band and he his growl works perfectly for the era um and you, you're cry out cry a while and lonesome day blues are the other highlights and mississippi oddly enough um which is also one of the triumphs in this album rolling stone 
gave it like an obligatory nod, I guess, because I had to include something from the man, Bob Dylan himself, on their list of the 200, I think it was, or 100 greatest songs of the 21st century so far. So like he was sandwiched, I think, between like uh, a Jay-Z and Beyonce song. song. It was like, and there's Bob Dylan's Mississippi at number 31. It's like, it was out. I think he was ranked higher than Arcade Fire's Wake Up. Like uh, most people who were reading the list probably have not heard Mississippi, but yeah, I mean, I would have given it to a different song in this album, to be honest. I would have given it to High Water. High water rising six inches above my head. Coffins dropping in the street like balloons made out of lead. What I poured into Vicksburg, don't know what I'm gonna do. Don't reach out to me, she say, can't you see I'm drowning too? It's rough out there. I want her everywhere. Well, George Lewis told the Englishman, the Italian and the Jew, you can't open up your mind, boys, to every conceivable point of view. They got Charles Darwin trapped out there on Highway 5. Judge says to the high sheriff, I want him dead or alive. Either one, I don't care. High water everywhere. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it definitely, I don't see why critics would have thought it's better because it's, like I said, it, to me, the thing that knocks it down is that it has a little bit too much of that kind of like throwback to swing bands and, and Tin Pan Alley-ness that doesn't quite work in like an ironic way where mm-hmm. Tom Waits, uh, Tin Pan Alley songs. Um, but it's just a, it's a fun record top to bottom. It may feel a little long at times because he, you know, Dylan at this point in his career just tends to do six, seven minute long songs. But I think it's fantastic and it's a great follow up to Time Adam. I think people may have rated it higher because he's more chipper and people just like people like a happy guy. People like an upbeat thing, even though some of these songs are, as you guys have all said, you know, are dark high water. It's it's his version of like uh, was what's that old Johnny Cash song? Was it five feet high and rising? Um, you know, you know, there's a, there's a whole kind of a, like history of flood songs, <laughs> like you know, like you, you, of course, all coming from like the Delta and from the South, like where you know people really just died in big massive floods. It's not something that you know we have to worry about these days, at least where I'm located. Um, but it's a great song. Floater is a great song. Uh, I think you know, "Summer Days" is kind of the classic example of that. Like, yeah, it's a Tin Pan Alley song. It's kind of a bluesy thing. It's got the sort of brushy drums. But God, it's just so darn chipper that how can you how can you uh, dislike it? this you know you, mississippi made the uh you know that rolling stone list i ironically vastly prefer all three alternate versions of mississippi from the time out of mind sessions that made it onto the bootleg series volume eight telltale signs um it's a great song 
I think this version of it is a little bit too straightforward, if anything. The song on Love and Theft that just has stayed with me forever is Sugar Baby. It's the last song on this record, which has one of the most haunting choruses of his career. You know, it's set to, you know, this guitar and this quiet accordion that plays in the background. Very uncharacteristic instrument for Dylan. But as you know, that line where he says, Sugar Baby, get on down the line. You ain't got no brains anyhow. You went years without me. You might as well keep going now. And it's just, you know, again, it's sort of like the older, kind of like, you know, no longer able to take the time to summarize it because he's lived too long and he's seen too much version of Idiot Wind. You know, uh, you know, almost kind of coming right back around full circle to don't think twice, it's all right. You just wasted my precious time, so don't think twice, it's all right. I love that song. It's the, it's, it's the slow ballad on the album that concludes the record. Uh, it's just a masterpiece. And uh, I think it's better than any single song on Modern Times, which sort of completes this latter trilogy. Um, that is Modern Times from 2006, so four more years later. This is, again, I will say a great album. I can name like half of the songs on this record. I like. I love his version of Rolling and Tumbling, which is an old blues standard. He plays it for six minutes. You'd think that would be too long, but no, it works. I love Sunday Baby. I love Nettie Moore, but the one that I really like is the final track on that. That's Ain't Talking. That's the one on Modern Times that stands out for me. But I, I want to know if you guys think that Modern Times is a letdown from those first two albums or if it keeps the par. I always saw it as standing on its own. I never considered it a trilogy, even though I know people consider it a trilogy. I've always seen Modern Times because it came five years later um, as distinctly different. And it might be because of my age at the time. And so I was sort of, um, you know, it was the first album that came out when I was truly, 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 absolutely in love with Bob Dylan. Um, and so for me, it had that sort of special place. And I know right. make fun of Thunder on the Mountain having uh, the shout out to Alicia Keys, but I think right. Thunder on the Mountain such a fantastic like rockabilly this is, this is a rockabilly billy album and, and best exemplified by how um, there's an even better version of the opening track thunder on the mountain done by wanda jackson with jack white on guitar and producing it and it's just absolutely ass kicking uh sunday baby is great but the, the thing you you named all the great songs on this album but the, the one thing that actually my favorite on the album might actually be when the deal goes down um which the is Bing a, Crosby one? Wait, wait, what? What is it? Is, is, is it a Bing Crosby song that's patterned off, or is it someone else? It is. Um, yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to get to. But I just that song I think is beautiful in the music video, which has um, Scarlett Johansson in it, and it's like shot on a, a on a Kodachrome, I think, and uh, just like of this, you know, Scarlett Johansson's laying in the hammock out back, and it's just longing, looking at this love from the fifties, and she's reading, of course, Woody Guthrie's uh, autobiography. We learn to live and then we forgive or the road we're bound to go more frailer than the flowers these precious hours that keep us so tightly bound you come to my eyes like a vision from the skies and I'll be with you when the deal goes down 
So what you were saying is that a Bing Crosby tune is that all the songs on this album are credited to Bob Dylan, but the big controversy about this album was the allegations that he was just plagiarizing throughout in terms of stealing from you know blues writers, from poets, and then taking all these traditional uh, songs like Someday Baby and, and just taking credit for the whole song or uh, Rolling and Tumbling. And I, I don't know if I... and or, or, you know, taking the... Basically lifting the Bing Crosby melody and making his own song out of it. And I'm not sure that I think it's a big deal because that's... It's the- a total bunch of bunk. I mean, the people who made this allegation and thought it was some sort of big revelation clearly know nothing <laughs> about the folk tradition because if they did, they'd go back and listen to flipping freewheeling mm-hmm. or the times they are changing and they'd realize that all those songs, the melodies of all those songs are taken from the folk tradition. We pointed this out. Remember, you yeah. pointed out that, that, that what, Restless Farewell is uh, from, what was it? The um, Brothers. You're right, and then you know I think uh, with God on our side is basically Patriot Games, that old Irish anthem. You know, blowing in the wind is no more auction block uh, repurposed. This is not Bob Dylan being a plagiarist. This is Bob Dylan doing what Bob Dylan has done for fifty flipping years. Right. I, I never understood the plagiarism allegations here. I always felt like a ginned up phony controversy. They made it about love and theft too, because the, I think love and theft was also the name of a Japanese poet's um, fam- most famous work, and there was similarities and like in very Dylan esque and Dylan fan esque ways, people were combing through the lyrics to find similarities to the Japanese lyrics, probably going through Dylan's trash to find. I, I'm rolling my eyes and making that that jack off motion with my hand right now. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And that's why we don't have a video feed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Grateful that this is audio only as a podcast. Just for that. I, I think modern time stands pretty tall and close to love and theft. To me, there's a little bit more lightheartedness to the songs on modern times than on that on love and theft. Um, there are a couple of ones uh, like Rolling and Tumbling, which is not one that he wrote, but it 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 sounds a little off still to hear Bob Dylan, you know, sing some young lazy slut has charmed away my brains. It's still kind of an odd line to hear Bob Dylan deliver. I do like the song, pretty blunt in the lyrics, as you can as you can hear. Working Man Blues number two is one that I like a lot from from this album. Um, you know, the title of the, of the album is Modern Times. The song is sort of looking for a time when things were. Uh, simpler and easier, and uh, but it's uplifting at the end, which we don't always get. Uh, I got a brand new suit, brand new wife, and I can live on rice and beans. Um, th- there's a little bit of an uplifting note at the end of the song. Now I'm down on my look, get a black and blue. Gonna give you another chance. I'm all alone, I'm expecting you to lead me off in a cheerful dance. Got a brand new suit and a brand new wife I can live on rice and beans Some people never work a day in their life Don't know what work even means Well, meet me at the bottom, don't lag behind Bring me my boots and shoes You can hang back or find your best on the front line Sing a little bit of these working bags Beyond the Horizon, which is kind of a breezy little country song, very pretty 
uh, song on Modern Times. Um, I think the band sound again. The band sounds very good. It sounds like a you know. It sounds like they cut it live. You know, basically live to, to tape, which certainly is not the case in, in in all these tracks. But it sounds like a tight uh, band that has played live a lot, and certainly they had. Um, it's a fine, fine album. I, I, I think it's a little lesser than Love and Theft, and of course, I think it's it's certainly uh, significantly lesser than Time Out of Mind. So the last two original albums of music in Dylan's career to date, and I know who knows. I, I know, you know Andrew. You told me that you know you've talked with people you know who know Bob, and nobody's really sure if he's ever going to get around to write an album of original material again at this point because he seems to have settled into this like I'm going to cover Frank Sinatra songs. <laughs> but the last two albums uh, that he did original music on are Together Through Life and Tempest. And I will say this, and I know it's, it's probably not appropriate to treat them as a pairing, as a group. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of either one of them. I know that Andrew likes at least uh, parts of both records. I think there's one song on these two records that really jumps out at me, and that's Pay in Blood off of Tempest. That's, uh, I think, I guess to date, the last truly great original song that Bob Dylan has ever written. And again, you know, when I, when I identify a great Dylan song, I don't just go by the lyrics because Bob Dylan is always capable of writing a great lyric. He has a, an, an ear and a, an eye for a poetic meter. It's the music that matters. This is a musically compelling song. So when I hear him sing something like, sooner or later you're going to make your mistake, I'm going to put you in a chain that you'll never break. This is you know ugly, ugly sounding lyrics, but legs and arms and body and bone, I pay in blood, but not my own. It sounds almost like a weird corpse grindery kind of a song, but man, the music is compelling. Someone must have slipped a drug in your wine. You got to down and you cross the line. Man can't live by bread alone. I pay blood, but not my own. How I made it back home, nobody knows. That's a great song, and of these two records, that is the one to date that really stays with me and I'm, I'm willing to be told that I'm wrong um, I would say of the two of them Together Through Life is the one that I genuinely like a lot Tempest has its moments uh, but Together Through Life for me is like again uh, it's the I guess the second album that came out in after I had truly you know dove into becoming a Dylan fan in my coming of age um, and for me it's it, I always envision it as like a way to describe it is first the album cover with a, a black and white photo of a, a young kind of hunky man, uh, presumably making out or with a woman in the backseat of a car. Um, and for me, the image I've always imagined is this is Bob Dylan, a gruff middle-aged man rolling up his sleeve and revealing like a, uh, a tattoo of a hand holding up a pair of aces. It's like gambling, dirty, bluesy uh, dusty sort of kind of desert music but more desert music and like the uh, you know 
cartels running the game, you know, the uh, Wild West gangs fighting. It's it's violent. It's it's dark. It's brutal. Um, I really, it's really like the video for Beyond Here Lies Nothing. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Beyond Here Lies Nothing. I shot. I think it's shot in one take, and it's just two two lovers beating the hell out of each other. Uh, it's like a Tarantino scene almost. <laughs> uh, and that sort of summarizes the, the the sort of theme of this album. While my ship is in harbor and the sails are spread, listen to me, pretty baby. Lay your hand upon my head Beyond here lies nothing Nothing done and nothing said I really love Together Through Life, but the only song for me and, the, and what really takes it down a lot of notches is... Uh, the penultimate song on the album. Oh, no, 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 it's not the penultimate. Uh, where is it on the album? Uh, I feel a change. Yeah, the penultimate song, I feel a change coming on, uh, is literally, except for the lyrics, chord for chord, including the introduction, is a facsimile of a song off Street Legal called Baby Stop Crying. It is the same exact song recycled, but with different lyrics. And when I first heard that song, I was so pissed off. <laughs> uh, the folk tradition, recycling, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you're, you're sitting here writing with, with Robert Hunter, a whole album of songs with Robert Hunter, who's Jerry Garcia's co-writer. And the lyrics are you know, great. And then you just come to this sort of cheesy, hopeful song that is, would have been fine if it was a different chord progression. But it's literally just a rewrite of an old song and not even like in the folk tradition of, re- of recycling things for newer purposes. It's just nothing changes at all. The introduction is literally the same. It gets me so riled up because it ruins for me a lot of what, what could have been like a fantastic album. And then Tempest, I think, is great. And it kind of continues the uh, that, you know, rambling, gambling Bob Dylan image in my head of, you know, even though he doesn't look like that, but like a five o'clock shadow and uh, slick back hair. Uh, and has a keeps a pocket knife, uh, keeps the switchblade in his pocket. Um, but this, I think, this album suffers. Pain Blood, you're right, by the way, is is uh, is a highlight for this album. But it suffers from Dylan getting a little self indulgent, I think, because the song lengths. You know, he's like I said earlier, a lot of the songs in the later period, Dylan, are all long. But there's there's the thirteen, and I think it's a fourteen minute song about the titanic sinking i don't like it at all tempest it's the title track on the album yeah and then there's this seven and a half minute song about john lennon which is actually not a terrible song roll on john it's called tempest i i I like some of the lyrics in in the song but like i'm not going to sit for 14 minutes to watch the movie titanic and i'm not going to watch the movie titanic because i'm not going to spend three hours By the way, the thing, my thought about Tempest is this. I think that is sort of the reductio ad absurdum of Dylan's gut bucket rasp voice where he eats like, he literally sounds like a cat (laughs) vomiting up its own intestines. And and you thought, well, okay, maybe this is, you know, hey, people age and voices deteriorate and this is the end of the line for him. But then he starts doing these fucking Frank Sinatra covers and crooning and you realize that it was just an imposture all along that like yeah you know this is an affect 
just like you know his original Woody Guthrie voice was an affect. His country voice was an affect. He didn't have to sing like this if he didn't want to. He could sing like the way he sings on Fallen Angels or Triplicate or anything like that. And I just was stunned because I listened to Tempest and I, that was the moment. This was like this was like was it 2011, 2012? And I was like, oh man, you know, like even for me, this is a bit much to take. And then like two years later, he's singing sinatra tunes and i'm like what what the hell is going on with this i was stunned to find out that he there's always a mask you just you know remember you talked andrew about bob dylan wearing whiteface on the uh the rolling thunder tour in our last episode he's always wearing whiteface you know whether you know even even in his old age he, there, there's, a, there's a trick. He's, he's a joker. He's playing a trick on you. And this, to me, you know, I, I don't like the song because, you know, it, it's, it's too overwrought. As you said, it's too long. It's too boring. But it, it was just such a stunning revelation to find out that, you know, he, you know, even now, he doesn't have to sing like that. He can sound like a completely normal person if he wants to. What a shock it was. Yeah. Scott? I have not actually heard... Uh, these most recent albums. So I have to lay out on this one. Ah, you don't want to talk about his, his new career as a tr- coverer, a, a traditional crooner of the Great American Songbook? Look, if I want it, that, I'm going for Rod Stewart, okay? Well, I mean, here's the thing. You would have thought... <laughs> oh, by the way, before we get to that, I want to point out Bob Dylan. You know, We talk about perverse Bob Dylan moves. He's had several in his career. We've covered them all during these three episodes. Uh, but maybe the best and, and most wonderfully perverse of all, I would argue that this is truly Bob Dylan's most psychedelic album ever, is his Christmas album. Yes, Bob Dylan put out a 100% sincere, full-fledged Christmas album in 2009. It's called Christmas in the Heart, and it opens with Here Comes Santa Claus. Right down Santa Claus way, and it opens and it ends with Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. And yep, He's singing all your favorite standards from Silver Bells to Do You Hear What I Hear and Hark the Herald Angels Sing and the Little Drummer Boy, a rumpa bum bum. He flippin' sings O Come All Ye Faithful in Latin. And you would think that this has to be a parody album, a joke, except for the fact that he commits. He commits to that music and... Listen, you know, I I think Andrew ranked this dead last in his list of Dylan albums. I'm pretty sure you're Uh, right, yes. Yes, but you know what? Uh, I will admit, I mean, obviously I'm never going to go out and put it on intentionally, but but when Christmas comes around, you bet your butt I put it on, and I usually do it to mess with with friends and family so that that they hear uh, Bob Dylan singing, uh, you know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, and the first Noel. Oh, God, it's so wonderful. You've got to hear Dylan singing these songs. It's really fun. It's stupid but fun. The first Noel the angel did say Was to certain poor shepherds In fields as they lay in fields where they lay a keep in their sheep On a cold winter's night that was so deep Noel, 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 Noel Body 
um, the video for Must Be Santa is uh, is really a sight to behold. It's so good. <laughs> it is. And by the way, that's a fun song. Dylan is, is again, he, you know, people asked him at the time, like, are, are, are you messing with us? Is this a joke? First of all, they'd forgotten. The guy did convert to Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, and he's, he, he was adamant. He's like, I'm not kidding around. People who think I'm kidding around, they, they pretend to know me. They pretend that they think they know who I am, but they don't know anything about me. And you know what? I believe him because you can hear he, he, this is, he does not sing these songs like a joke. He commits the heck to these songs. And it's strange to see somebody committing so hard to like goofy Christmas traditional standards. But again, you, you're never going to want to put this album on, you know, when you're like, yeah, I want to hear the best of Bob Dylan. But yeah, again, it's it's a fun Christmas novelty. I think it may be my favorite Christmas album ever. I prefer it to the Beach Boys <laughs> Christmas album. And that's a strange thing to say because I can't play it. As I said, I put it on to mess with my family and friends. Um, but the reason I even mention this is because this kind of inaugurates the latest and one wonders is at the final stage of Dylan's career where he has ironically he sung Christmas in the heart and that gut bucket voice very you know I don't that's my best imitation of it and then all of a sudden he decided I'm going to interpret these traditional standards a lot of them mostly Frank Sinatra songs and on three consecutive albums one of them a triple album um, Shadows in the Night Fallen Angels and the most recent from last year Triplicate which was a triple album he is interpreting the sort of great American songbook uh, the Tin Pan Alley songwriters the sort of you know 50s 40s and 50s songwriters he's crooning and I have to say you just hear that description and you think it must be a disaster but the thing is, is that first of all, Dylan reveals that he, he, he actually can sing these songs. He's doing his best, and he, and he actually knows how to do them. His voice is better than he has led on for all these years. And also, he, the arrangements, which are all from his band, are very good, and they're interesting, they're tasteful, and Dylan finds interesting spins on these songs. That said, this is never going to be my favorite style of Bob Dylan, and I am still waiting for the next time he blows us away with a time out of mind. I know, Scott, you haven't heard any of this material. Right. Andrew, do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, but before I do, I just realized while you were talking something, uh, a funny, a fun story about the Christmas album. Sorry to make a left turn. No, no, go for it, man. I love that album. It's so dumb to say, but I love that album. <laughs> it makes it especially funny for me. And like, it's enjoyable. I, I like putting it last was just my way of saying it's not really like a Dylan album, but it's fun. Like, you know, me and my wife put it on as like a fun thing around Christmas. Um, is he actually in the two thousands, uh, they kind of came back around and went the other way and started dabbling with Orthodox Judaism. And so that makes it even more, especially like he actually, he attended Yom Kippur services at um, my father's Chabad temple in, in, on Long Island. Uh, like that's how absurd his like sort of, he's constantly swerving and he's like, yeah, I'll make a Christmas album, whatever. Like the guy cannot be pigeonholed in any possible way. Uh, and then getting to the, the Sinatra albums, um, yeah, they're 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 perfectly good, and it's great to hear him sing. And also, it shows you now. And if if anybody should be encouraged to go see Dylan, despite the reputation of being froggy uh, and unable to, you know, impossible to understand what he's singing live and guessing the song each time he's playing, the, these albums sort of changed his direction of his voice live. And now he's starting to croon a lot like this live and playing these songs live, uh, and they work well. But the only song I would say that is like a must off these. Uh, 
off these albums is Full Moon and Empty Hearts. But other than that, I have nothing to say. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I actually do like him hearing hearing him sing songs like As Time Goes By, which is, of course, the famous song from Casablanca. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. Um, I, but, you know, it's just bizarre. Uh, this, it, if you had thought, you know, that Bob Dylan, A Hard Rain Is Gonna Fall, was going to end up by singing these foolish things <laughs> <laughs> or stardust you know like boy you know guess again my friend and this brings us to date to the end of bob dylan's career we made it i can't believe that we did it it only <laughs> took us three episodes before we wrap up though uh this is something that i wanted to do even from when we conceptualize these records we talked so many times about the bootleg series and i just need to explain you know, to summarize again bob dylan's unreleased career is almost as famous as his released career particularly to fans uh and the record label eventually began to take advantage of that they realized there was gold in them their hills and they started releasing beginning in 1991 a whole series of vault albums beginning with the first release which is the bootleg series volumes one through three we've talked about songs from this record constantly throughout this three episode show um we love this album in fact when we talk about the bootleg series there's really almost no point in in mentioning this one it is a trawl of sort of his greatest unreleased hits from 1961 to 1991 uh, everybody must own it if you're even mildly interested in dylan you must own that three cd box set it's probably one of the most essential releases in his career the only reason it isn't going to make it onto any of our lists i suspect is because it, it's not an album it's a retrospective but then after that uh they went on to release a whole new series of archival releases beginning with the bootleg series volume four all the way up to now we're at number 13 there's a bunch of these. Number four is uh, his live 1966 concert, the, the famous Judas concert uh, from his tour at the band. Number five is the Rolling Thunder tour. Uh, number six is, um, gosh, I, I'm even, this is the, the danger of trying to recall it off the top of your head. I think number six is, oh, yeah, it's his 1964 acoustic concert at Philharmonic Hall. Number seven is the soundtrack to the, the Martin Scorsese documentary, No Direction Home. Number eight is his sort of from Oh Mercy to Modern Times, uh, Telltale Signs, uh, unreleased material. Number nine is Whitmark demos. It's these recording demos that he recorded in the early 60s. Number 10 is a record that we talked about a lot here, which is another self-portrait, sort of a recasting and a reevaluation of that most hated era of Dylan's early career from Nashville Skyline to New Morning. Uh, number 11 is the one that everybody had been waiting for forever, the Complete Basement Tapes. Number 12 is another one that people have been waiting for forever, which is every single damn thing he released from 1967, 1965 to 1966, bringing it all back home, all the way through Blonde on Blonde, all of that material. And then finally, at least bringing it up to the present day, uh, the most recent release is Trouble No More, the bootleg series volume 13, and that's his gospel era stuff. Almost entirely live material with a few studio outtakes basically revealing how powerful he was during that era. We covered that earlier. Um, since 
you know, Scott is not really a, a train spotting expert on this. And Andrew and I clearly are. We've literally exchanged <laughs> copies of this material with one another, you know, you know via you know email for the last three years. I, I, I wanted to have a brief discussion about which of these meant the most to us, and which we would recommend to people who aren't really familiar with the bootleg experience when it comes to Dylan. Yeah, uh, I would say the most essential ones are. Obviously, volumes one through three, that's that's the one everybody has to own. But then the 66 concert, Royal Albert Hall, um, the Judas concert, I mean, that's like the document of that era. That is those songs at their peak with the band backing him. I think Levon Helm wasn't playing that night, though. Um, Telltale Signs, I think, is great. That's where you can find Digny and I think two versions of it. There's a piano version, too. I'm not sure if it's on that one or if it was on released on one of his many compilations. Uh, and then another self-portrait is i think my favorite of all of them um it's just unbelievable how many great songs were written during that period and then completely disregarded and instead yeah. he really a portrait uh the basement tape probably. <laughs> and i i, I think about trouble no more being like you know the live period the gospel period was arguably one of his better live periods i mean my and this is this is maybe the insufferable ultra fans perspective where like the stuff that everybody like the casual fan was waiting for like oh yeah here's dylan during the highway 61 period here are the basement tapes here's the royal albert hall concert yeah yeah i'm bored with it <laughs> i got the bootlegs long ago I'm, I'm trying to sort of reconcile the fact that i knew so much of this stuff already so maybe i'm a little bit you know jaded but for me, what matters the most about the bootleg series, aside from, as I already stipulated, everybody must own the bootleg series volumes one through three. That's, a, that's just like a single boxed set. It's essential listening if you're even mildly interested in Dylan. The ones for me are the ones that forced me to radically reevaluate my opinions of eras of his career that I had otherwise dismissed. Like you, another self-portrait. I thought I knew what I, everyone was supposed to know about that era. I knew nothing. I knew nothing at all until I heard the outtakes from that 1969 through 1971 era. I was just mesmerized by it. I was blown away. I even, by God, I even learned to appreciate the Isle of White concert when I learned that. Telltale Signs is the other one. Bootleg Series Volume 8, that's his sort of latter era uh, collection. I feel like You've got to hear the the albums from you know Oh Mercy to Time Out of Mind to Love and Theft and Modern Times. But when you hear these early versions, you realize these were fully formed. Even you know if they were played as demos, it opens with this early version of Mississippi that is just Dylan, you know, singing uh, you know on a piano, and it's to my mind at least infinitely more effective. That or on a guitar, it's infinitely more effective than the version that ended up on Love and Theft. Ain't got nothing for you, had nothing before. Don't even have anything for myself anymore. Sky's full of fire, and the pain is pouring down. There's nothing you can sell me, I see you around. My powers of expression A thought so sublime That never do you justice With reason or rhyme Only one thing 
Mississippi a day too long. There are so many other countless examples of great, great outtakes from that latter era. And again, this is when people say like, oh, yeah, Dylan's lost his voice. He can't sing. No, no, no. He's an interpretive genius during this era. And of course, the final one I'll say is maybe my single favorite of the bootleg series, which is Trouble No More. I had long heard people say like, oh, yeah, trust me, the gospel stuff, it maybe feels a little stiff on the albums. It's a little strange, a little monochromatic. But you've got to hear the live shows. You've got to hear the live performances. And I thought, well, that's just fanboyishness. You know, even I'm skeptical of people who overly gush about these things. And then I heard the set and I was convinced. I was absolutely convinced. And, and, and one of the reasons I was convinced is that if you buy the deluxe edition, you know, heaven help me, I'm, I'm, now I'm making that jacking motion again. Um, it has two extra concerts that are included, one of them from 1980, one of them from 1981. And you hear that Dylan is in his best voice ever. His band is one of the tightest bands ever. He performs these songs with such conviction, with such power. The songs are solid. The songs are great. And he does them with such heart and with such spirit that like, I, it, it would, it would make an atheist contemplate the immortal. It's that good when you hear his like saved era. Yes, from the album Saved, his live saved era concerts of April 1980. Just amazing material. I really ask people who, again, had dismissed this era, and I can understand why, to go pick up that set and just give it a fair shot because he, he will win you over. Um, Bob Dylan is an endless fount of releases. I'm sure that you know months after this this episode is posted, there will be another one out, and we'll have missed the boat on that. Uh, but that's the thing about him is that you know you know he keeps making new music, but his old music is actually you know something that it doesn't feel exploitative when it gets released. It feels like we're just adding to a great legacy, and. It's very rare when you say that. This isn't like the you know, you know another two-pack album, which is like you know like recorded like him farting on microphone. These are really great, great, great outtakes that will still keep coming out. They still haven't done that alternate blood on the tracks bootleg series set. I have no idea when it's coming, but when it does, it'll be a piker. And that'll be covered in part four sometime down the road. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> that is the Political Beats look at the long career of Bob Dylan. We come to the part of the episode in which uh, all three of us hand over to you, the listener, our choices for uh, two albums that you should own, five songs that you need to hear, uh, and our, our guest always goes first. We have nearly 40 years to cover in this episode, so best of luck to all of us. Uh, Andrew Carell from the Daily Beast, you're up first. Uh... So I think we're probably all going to, well, I don't know. We may all have the same albums and similar songs, but we've talked about every single one of my songs in depth, so I won't really expound upon them. But for albums, Oh Mercy and Time Out of Mind, um, I was debating between Time Out of Mind and Infidels because I just love Infidels so much, but <laughs> Time Out of Mind for me, I, I, how could I not? Uh, and then the songs, like I, as you heard me gushing earlier, Every Grain of Sand, Not Dark Yet, 
Blind Willie McTell, which was never released on an album. See them big plantations burning. Hear the cracking of the whips. Smell that sweet magnolia blooming. See the ghost of slavery still. I can hear them tribes moaning. Hear that undertaker's bell. Man in the Long Black Coat and Joker Man. And you'll notice I left off Brownsville Girl because of the reasons I explained earlier that it's not a song I would tell everybody people need to listen to, but it's uh, it's just a song I'm very, very fond of. Uh, all right, for uh, my two albums, I think I picked the two that are the best whole documents of music. And so that is Slow Train Coming and Time Out of Mind. I think those two of this entire era work the best as in, as, as as whole pieces of of art, uh, as as statements, as songs that connect with each other and mean something and build on one other one another. Slow train coming and time out of mind. Uh, from or for the songs from Slow Train Coming, uh, Precious Angel. I think is the best song on that album. Uh, off of um, Infidel's um, Man of Peace, I, I think, is the, the best writing on the album, both musically and, and lyrically. That goes on the list. And for the final three, you know, I just I just picked my favorites and the best, I think, from from this the, from that late career trilogy. So from uh, Time Out of Mind, I do think it's, it's not dark yet. And I've been to London And I've been to Game I followed the river And I got to the sea I've been down on the bottom Of a world full of lies I ain't looking for nothing In anyone's eyes Sometimes my bird Love and Theft, it's it's Mississippi. And then from modern times, I think it's Working Man's Blues number two. Jeff, over to you. Well, for the albums, Scott, you and I are of the same mind. Uh, Slow Train Coming begins this show, and I think it is a complete document. And it is has it, it not only has conviction in singing and performance, it has variety in the music. It's just a great album. Set aside your, your preconceptions. Just come to it fresh. You're going to like it. And man did give names to all the animals. Um, <laughs> Time Out of Mind is my second choice. I already explained it. You know, Andrew talked a lot about how um, 
uh, Modern Times was the first album that he came to as like a, a true blue convinced Dylan fan when he was putting out a, a new album. For me, that was Time Out of Mind. And uh, I had been there for years as, as a big fan and had just accepted that he was dead creatively. So to see him suddenly raised from the dead like Lazarus coming out of the grave was such a shock that uh, it, it, it jolted me. And, it, and I think in some ways it really changed the way I approached music and I approached the way artists age um, up to the present day. It, it had that kind of a major effect upon me. My five songs, um, Precious Angel from Slow Train Coming, already mentioned by Scott, um, praised by Andrew. We all love this song. This is such a beautiful piece of music. Uh, my second one would be The Groom Still Waiting at the Altar. Originally a B-side of Shot of Love, the song Shot of Love when it was released as a single, and then later appended to the album. Um, maybe one of the great Dylan rockers of his later era. I love that guitar. I love that lyric. Uh, again, the, the, the female vocalists, man, he knew how to use them back in the day. Dignity. Uh, moving ahead all the way to the Oh Mercy era. This song didn't come out until Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, Volume 3. And there are many alternate versions of it, but the one that I like the most is the one that you will find on Greatest Hits, Volume 3. I love the banjo, I love the guitar, and I love every aspect of those lyrics. Those lyrics are short, concise, gnomic, and his vocal performance of them just sells in a way that he had not really done up until that point for a decade, the nobility of searching for something better in the world. Um, he sounded like a man who had once been tired, who found a second wind uh, from time out of mind, cold irons bound. I already talked about why I like it. David Lynch soundtrack set to music. And then my last song, number five would be sugar baby. It's the last song on love and theft. And I will, uh, again, just keep pointing to that chorus, that 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 painfully moving chorus, you know, with the accordion, uh, where he says, you know, sugar baby, get on down the line. You ain't never had no brains anyhow. You went years without me. You might as well keep going now. It's the resignation and the sadness of a man who is old and who has seen it all and has, you know, stopped trying to fight his impulses and stopped trying to convince himself that he doesn't care kind of brings you around full circle to something like don't think twice at all it's all right um his greatest latter-day song in my opinion your charms have broken many a heart and mine is surely one you got a way of tearing a world apart love see what Just as sure as we're living Just as sure as you're born Look up, look up See your maker For Gabriel Blues is called Sugar baby, get on down the line It ain't got no sense, no harm You went years without me Might as well keep going down 
There we are, the Political Beats Part 3 on Bob Dylan. Thank Andrew Carell, Senior Editor at the Daily Beast, overseeing breaking news, political media, and occasionally music coverage. He's written a lot on Bob Dylan. You can find that all in the Daily Beast archives. Follow him on Twitter, at Andrew Carell. Andrew, you came back three times. Thank you so much for joining us here on Political Beats. I feel like I know you guys so well. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly better than when we started, no doubt. Uh, Jeff, we got through Bob. D- we got through the Beatles. We got through Bob Dylan. Wow. Hey, you know what? You know we're we're gonna set ourselves a, a an easier target next time. We're gonna do Beethoven, all nine symphonies. <laughs> uh, you can find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. My name is Scott Bertram uh, at Scott Bertram on Twitter. Reminder, subscribe to our feed. You get all the new episodes when they are released. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews. You can also follow us on Twitter and join the conversation at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. <laughs>